Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning. What is it? It's Tuesday. 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 It is Tuesday. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We're so glad that you could join us. President Biden calling on Congress to intervene and block a rail strike as the deadline nears. Democratic leaders say they could act as soon as this week. Also, ahead of today's match against the U.S., Iranian players told to get in line or their families could face torture or imprisonment. Also this. Well, he, he should condemn any, those kinds of things that anybody, anybody would stand for, no matter who they are. It's been clear that there's no bottom to the degree to which President Trump will uh, degrade uh, himself and, and the nation. A stream of Republican lawmakers are now speaking out about the former president's decision to dine with an anti-Semite, with his former vice president potentially going further than all of them as he urges his former boss to apologize. We're going to begin with a very tall order from President Joe Biden. He is calling on Congress to come together to keep the nation's freight rail workers from walking off the job. He's asking lawmakers to adopt a tentative contract agreement that was reached in September by rail management and labor leaders. Getting Congress to come together on anything can be a real challenge, as we know. But the president says heading off a rail strike is a challenge that has to be met. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi agrees. She says that we must act, and I'm quoting here, to prevent a catastrophic nationwide rail strike, which would grind our economy to a halt. Let's bring in CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, this morning. Christine, thank you very much. Hi, good good morning. morning. This is down to the wire. This is down to the wire, and this is a very big deal. This is something that an economy that has been showing shaky resilience just cannot afford a big nationwide rail strike. And we thought this had been averted. A lot of concessions have been made, a 24% pay increase, improved health care benefits, flexibility for some time off. But the big sticking point here is paid sick leave. So what you're seeing on your screen there is what would be affected by a rail strike? Everything. Everything that touches America's rails. Gas, fertilizer, food. Factories would probably have to close. You would see disruptions again, and even commuter commuter traffic could be affected. So this is a very big deal. It affects every corner of the economy. Because Congress has not one, not two, but three different ways to avert this, is this What are the chances of this actually happening, a strike? You know, everyone agrees it can't happen. The question is, who has to pay for that, right? Are you going to try to pressure these other unions into not accepting the paid time off they want? They were granted one extra paid day off, but many of these union leaders of the four unions that have not agreed to this have said, this is unsellable to our our rank and file, that you have to have paid sick leave, especially in an economy where we've just gone through a pandemic, where people have been forced to stay out because of sickness. Just real quick, you said can't happen, meaning it It, shouldn't. I think she means won't, won't, right? Won't? No, I mean, it 
It, 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 it should not. It should not. Yes. It should not. It yeah. can't, they all agree it can't happen. Now they have to figure out how to make it no. not happen. But here. here's that, the issue with that is that Biden is calling on Congress to take action now. Nancy Pelosi says the House will take up the agreement. It's not totally clear to me that's a great what point. the Senate is going to yeah. do. And of course, if this isn't resolved by December, that's when that strike could happen. But this stance from Biden kind of surprised me yesterday. Yeah. It was very aggressive. He was saying this is what should happen. And it, it, it puts him at risk of pitting him against the rank and file Rail workers here who say that they have been mistreated by their bosses. And he had called himself a proud pro-labor president and stepped back and had wanted this process to be ratified along normal path, the normal pathway. But the, the consequences are just so great here. There's a lot of pressure in Washington and, frankly, in the business world. We've heard from business leaders and trade groups have been saying Congress has got to do this now because we cannot risk this. And the deadline, I think, is December 6th. But really, the deadline is right now because companies are ordering mm-hmm. products for their factories and they are planning shipments of things. That's happening right now. And yeah. if you don't have certainty, that is a real enemy of economic growth. To Caitlin's point. You're, it's such a good point, because as Senator 92, he was one of few senators to vote against legislation to block a rail strike. It's different when you're president, right? Yeah. We have yeah. lots more to come on yeah. this. We'll continue this. As Thank a matter you. of fact, Great. Thank you, Christine Romans. We appreciate it. We're, uh, we're going to speak to a rail worker who says that Biden is catering to oligarchs. More on that straight ahead. New this morning. Shanghai Disneyland shut down again because of China's rigid zero COVID policies. The theme park had just reopened four days ago after shutting down at the end of October. Ahead, we'll have new CNN reporting on President Biden's view of what is happening, the protests and the unrest in China. Also, the U.S. and Iran are going to face off this afternoon in a World Cup match. It is expected to be tense, but it is also being overshadowed by those anti-government protests that are happening at home in Iran. CNN has learned that Iran's players have been warned by their government to, quote, behave or risk their families being tortured, potentially, or imprisoned. Earlier in the World Cup, you saw the Iranian team refusing to sing its national anthem. Meanwhile, Iranian media is asking the U.S. men's team captain what it's like to represent a country they claim has, quote, discrimination within its borders. Amanda Davis is live for CNN this morning in Doha. I mean, this is... Such an intense match, A, just because it is consequential and decisive for either side, whether or not they are going to continue to play. But also we are seeing the way that politics at home is just overshadowing all of this. Yeah, good morning, Caitlin. The U.S. team facing a pre-match press conference like never before, being confronted head-on by talk of politics and international relations. That was always going to be the case when this draw was made. But given events in Iran over the last couple of months, here in Qatar over the last couple of weeks, it's impossible to extricate this sporting matchup from the international diplomatic landscape, much like the last time these two sides met at a World Cup back at France 98. A winner-take-all match at the World Cup, bringing politics center stage. The U.S. men's soccer team will face off against Iran in a match that will determine which team proceeds to the knockout stages here in Qatar. There's no real distractions. You know, I know there's a lot going on here, but the group is focused on how do we get a win. This is the first time the two teams have played in a World Cup match since 1998, when Iran beat the U.S., In recent days, Iran's state media has called for Team USA to be disqualified from the games after the team changed Iran's flag on its social media accounts for 24 hours to show solidarity with protests for women's rights. It was meant to be a moment. Uh, We made the post at the time. All the other uh, representations of the flag remain consistent 
and will continue to. The players and their coach say they had no previous knowledge of the posts. We support women's rights. We always have, we always will. That, that message will, will remain consistent. Um, and, and what we're doing as a team is, is um, supporting that while also trying to prepare for the biggest game that this squad has, has had to date. At a press conference Monday, an Iranian reporter called for U.S. team captain Tyler Adams to correct his pronunciation of the country's name and pushed him to address discrimination in the U.S. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, you know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and, and kind of assimilate into different cultures, um, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. This comes as a source involved with the security of the games tells CNN that Iranian players' families were threatened with imprisonment and even torture if the players did not behave ahead of the match. These threats were made after the Iranian players did not sing the national anthem during one of their matches. The players sang during their following game against Wales just days later. What we're seeing right now uh, in the past two months of this protest movement is any indication it could be very dire. They could be killed, they could be tortured, uh, they could be prevented from leaving the country. The Iran coach, Carlos Quirosh, has called for the politics to be put to one side for 90 minutes of the match. His side just a draw away from a place in the knockout stage for the first time at the World Cup. For the US, it's simple, win or go home. Yep, we'll be watching this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern. Amanda, thank you so much for that update. Well, joining us now to talk about all of this, HBO Real Sports correspondent David Scott, his latest report on Qatar and the treatment of migrant workers uh, there, which is a critical aspect in all of this, is streaming right now on HBO Max. David, thank you very much for, for being here. And, and good morning, Jeremy. Where do we start? That exchange we were just talking about was remarkable between that Iranian journalist and, 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 and the U.S. Te teammate. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that Omid Dajali, who's an Iranian-British actor and comedian, said this. He said, this will be the most significant and politically charged match in the history of the World Cup. You think about 98 when the U.S. played Iran, the White Roses that Iran team brought, they, they hugged at the end of the match, right, despite tension. This is so much different. Will this be, as big as he says, the most significant and most politically charged? Very likely, it is the most politicized match in modern World Cup history. Um, in 1998, it was all about bilateral geopolitics. Today, it's all about the rebellions that are burning in the streets of Tehran, and, and that really has changed everything. Wow. What does this mean? Look, everyone usually, the World Cup, we, our team wants to win, our team wants to win. This is, I mean, just to, you know, to go off what Poppy's saying, this is more than just sports. This is about the women in Iran. This is about the LGBTQ people in Iran and, and worldwide. Um, this, is a, this is about civil rights. It's more than just a soccer match. Much more. And, and, and it really gives lie to FIFA's almost delusional claim that, uh, that, that the World Cup is somehow above and, and beyond sports. No, it's, it's, it's showcasing politics. And, you know, inadvertently and in, even in, in spite of itself, millions of people will learn about the rebellions in Iran through the World Cup games. That's not what FIFA, FIFA intends, but that's, what's, that's yeah. what will happen. That's such an important point because this is what is putting it front and foremost for so many people. You know, we talk about this every single day because it's our job to pay close attention to this, but for a lot of people who are tuning in to, tuning in to watch, this is putting it 
front and center. I wonder what you're watching today to see how Iran's team handles this once they're on well, the pitch. You, your heart has to go out to the Iranian players. Um, you know, they're, they're playing at this level of the game uh, in front of pro-government protesters, anti-government protesters. They themselves have not been silent. In fact, their, their own protest has been extraordinary, wearing black jackets over their uniform for the friendly against Senegal, not singing the national anthem in a country where, you know, you provoke that regime and anything could happen. Um, yeah, and they're threatening their families. That's right. That's right. And so, and so this is, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher for, for the players, um, for, the, for the regime. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, you know, the world has an opportunity to, to learn what's happening in, uh, in, in the country of Iran because of, uh, of these games. And for the people of Qatar, can we show, can we highlight some of your reporting? Because you did a Real Sports reporting. It's streaming now on HBO Max. Show some of the squalid living conditions of migrant workers in, in Qatar. Have a listen to this. 22-year-old Koum lived here among 150 other men, all of whom had to share two bathrooms. This is one. One of two. Coom told us there were fights in the morning, just to get to one before the work bus left. Where's the shower? So not have this one, not There's no shower here. There's nowhere to wash your body. No. Where do you wash your body? Then buckets. You wash your body in the toilet? Yes. But and take the buckets yeah. and you to go in the toilet yeah, and, you, and you wash up. Yeah. The men were being paid just a few dollars a day when they were being paid at all. As many were forced to wait months, even years, for any money. So they've invested billions of dollars, Cutter, in putting on these global events, but Behind the shiny facade. Qatar is very much a modern feudal society. It's an absolute monarchy. They can do whatever they want. Uh, it's a society that relies on some of the poorest people in the world to do all the heavy lifting. Um, and, um, and, and so, yes, the, you know, um, when we went, it was uh, eight and a half years ago. Um, and, uh, and the construction of the World Cup was in the very early stages. And, uh, and they, you know, they can hardly hide it um, when you have, you know, a million people or so. Um, you know, building stadiums, building freeways, um, all kinds of infrastructure uh, and being treated um, really as, you know, not just sub-citizens, but subhuman in many cases. Yeah. David, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's good thank to you. see you. Appreciate Great it. reporting. Good morning. Yeah. Well, ahead, Republican senators slamming Donald Trump over his dinner with an anti-Semitic white nationalist who from his own admission just called him out. His administration, I should say, just called him out. We'll tell you. And the owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, accusing Apple of making a threat that could bring Twitter to its knees. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So this can potentially really affect our economy. As we just told you moments ago, President Biden urging Congress to do something to avert a rail strike, saying, quote, a rail shutdown would devastate our economy. A strike would happen as soon as December 9th, leading to travel disruptions, chain supply, um, supply chain, I should say, shortages, and higher food and gas prices. Let's discuss now. Matthew Weaver is here. He serves as an organizer and Ohio's legislative director for the third largest rail workers union in the U.S. Um, his union, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees, represents 23,000 
rail workers. Um, good morning to you, Matthew. There's about 150,000 railway workers around the country, so this could potentially affect a lot of people. Um, we're glad that you're joining us. Talk about the main sticking point here, paid leave. Why is this so important for you guys? At this point in time, it's paid sick days that maintenance away employees need. We are considered essential. And it seems like with the look at a ticker tape, we're expendable from essential to expendable in a you know, snap of the fingers. It's very frustrating. I want to play something that President Biden said last year about how important unions are to him and get your reaction. Here he was. You know, you've heard me uh, say many times I intend to be the most pro-union president, leading the most pro-union administration in American history. Now he's made clear that he believes Congress should step in and stop you guys from being able to strike. You said he is, quote, catering to the oligarchs. What do you mean? It certainly seems that campaign campaign finance and lobbying affect our politicians, our public servants of votes and their actions. I I think that if he wants to really serve the American people, he should um, take what the tentative agreement was and impose sick paid sick days that that would make I, I believe that would have many many more of our members would be voting yes on something with paid sick days do you believe a strike is worth it if it cripples the u.s economy and costs up to two billion dollars a day and the president says you know up to seven hundred sixty-five thousand union jobs in the first two weeks is it worth it i honestly don't think we are that near a strike most, many of our members don't want to strike. We don't want to strike. We want what's just. We want, in this day and age of um, high inflation, you know, and, and a pandemic around illness, we, we would like paid sick days. Matthew, I think you make a really important point there that you, do, you don't want to strike. This isn't something you're seeking, but right. it's something that rail workers feel they need to push for because of, of not getting what you need here. In President Biden's statement yesterday, he said that the secretaries of labor, agriculture and transportation, his three top lieutenants who have been dealing with this, uh, basically see that there is no path to resolve the dispute at the bargaining table. And that's why they're recommending they seek Congress to take action here. Do you trust that the administration has basically done their best at the bargaining table to, to advocate for you? I like the fact that the influence from the DOL and DOT are helping us, but I feel like the carriers are not bargaining in good faith. They are um, worshiping the shareholders. Mm. It's profit over people in America, and it's very frustrating. You said that you, you just said that you don't want to strike, right? You said you don't think you're that close to a strike, but I mean, to be quite honest with you, right, and I think you know this, this is the most bargaining power that you probably have had or may have. Um, you know, it's getting close to the holidays. We've had supply chain issues from the pandemic and so on and so forth. If you're going to bargain, you're going to do it now. So I'm sure you're aware of the power that you have in this moment. I think it's all of the working class, not just real labor, that has this power. And people, it, it's like an epiphany. The light bulb's going off. It's like, oh, yeah, we produce this. We make this. And that's very important for the working class to realize the strength they have. I, I really think this is a time of awakening 
for the person who works 40 hours and just wants to raise a family and put their kids through school. Just Matthew, quickly before you go, one thing that I think is getting missed in these conversations and the headlines is that you guys have also been asked to do a lot more work. As I understand it, one of the big groups that regulates freight rail says that you guys, the workforce largely has been reduced by 30 percent over the past six years. So you have to do more work. Right. And a lot of the substitute workers that would fill in for you guys when you're out are gone. So then you have to cover for like doing double the work. That's a big part of this, right? Absolutely. We've lost substantial manpower uh, because of the consequences of precision scheduled railroading, PSR. It's all about that profit margin and not about serving the customers, the employees or the infrastructure. Matthew, we know how important this is to you. Thank you for joining us this morning to talk about this. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks so much. Call on me anytime. Thanks, Matthew. All right. Also this morning, protests against China against China's zero COVID lockdowns have spread to cities around the world. At least one campus even here in New York. Also this this morning. I think it's disgusting to invite uh, people like that to meet with a former president of the United States. And he should denounce those individuals uh, uh, and their hateful rhetoric without qualification. Those are top Republicans coming out to condemn Donald Trump for having dinner with a white nationalist at Mar-a-Lago. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. It is half past six, and this is what's coming up. A rebuke from Mike Pence and other Republicans over Donald Trump's dinner with a white nationalist. Audie Cornish and John Avalon are standing by. Elon Musk starts a war with Apple, accusing the tech giant of hating free speech. And Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano erupting for the first time in nearly 40 years. Our Bill Weir is going to join us live. Plus a remarkable story. A woman is found 51 years later after she was kidnapped as a toddler. That story is straight ahead. But we start this morning with the criticism of what we've seen happening, not only on Capitol Hill, but many places. A number of Republicans are now issuing rare rebukes of former President Trump after he hosted a well-known anti-Semite and white supremacist, Nick Fuentes, for dinner at his private club last week alongside Kanye West, who has also espoused anti-Semitic conspiracies. Most of that criticism of Trump came from Senate Republicans on Capitol Hill yesterday, marking a rare break with the former president in the upper echelons of the GOP. Well, he, he should condemn any, those kinds of things that anybody, anybody would stand for, no matter who they are. Um, clearly, it's not our view. It's not my view. Uh, I, would, I don't think it's his view. Um, but as you know, President Trump doesn't, doesn't condemn uh, a lot of people who uh, support him. Well, I think he make better choices, obviously. I think it's disgusting to invite uh, people like that to meet with a former president of the United States. Um, I think there's, uh, it's been clear that there's no bottom to the degree to which President Trump will uh, degrade uh, himself and, and the nation. Should he apologize? Do you think that more Republicans... Oh, he doesn't. He, uh, he, he never sees anything wrong in anything he does. So this is characteristic of uh, his approach, which is either say it was a joke or say he didn't know what was happening. Uh, but that doesn't fly. Obviously, this is uh, something which degrades him, frankly, to do what he's done. And, and it's something which diminishes the country as well. It's very unfortunate. The strong criticism of Trump's judgment isn't just coming from the halls of Capitol Hill, but also down in Georgia, where I spoke with the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, yesterday. 
That was a bad decision. There's no place for that in the Republican Party. I know he's got, uh, you know, his answer to that question, and I'll let him speak to that. But my views on that are, are very clear. It's not just in Capitol Hill. It's not just in Georgia. The criticism is also coming from those who worked for Trump in the White House. Jason Greenblatt, who served as Trump's envoy to the Middle East, praised Trump's record in a CNN opinion piece this morning, but said the dinner, quote, should not have happened, period. Greenblatt said that he hopes Trump condemns Fuentes and West for, quote, what they are, haters of Jews and haters of the foundations of the United States of America. Greenblatt calling Fuentes dangerous to the United States. But perhaps the strongest condemnation came from Trump's number two, his former number two, Vice President Mike Pence, who says his former boss should apologize. President Trump was wrong uh, uh, to give a, a white nationalist, uh, um, an anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier a seat at the table. And uh, I think he should apologize for it uh, and he should denounce those individuals uh, uh, and their hateful rhetoric without qualification. Let's bring in CNN senior political analyst John Avalon and CNN anchor and correspondent and host of the fantastic new podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Audie Cornish, thank you both for being here. Good morning. Uh, so that was, we were talking yesterday on the program about where are these Republican voices in Congress. Took a few days, but they're there and there's a lot, a lot of them. Um, but missing, there are some big ones missing too. Where is Kevin McCarthy, who in February called out Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar in Congress for speaking at Fuentes's white nationalist conference called it unacceptable, no place for our party to have this then? What about now? Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing up that event because that is supposed to be Fuentes, to, in his mind, creating an alternative to CPAC and has had uh, luminaries of the extreme right there. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke there, right? He was brought on to, after chance of, you know, yay Putin or whatever. So I think the real issue is what exactly does this mean, if anything, based on what we've seen the last couple of months, for the power of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? We've seen Kevin McCarthy talking about the last couple of days, the people he wants to elevate, the voices he wants to support. And now here's a perfect example of why people had very serious yeah. questions about supporting this particular person. And now the rubber meets the road about what it means to be, to be a leader. That, that's exactly right. I mean, if you, if you look at Kevin McCarthy, you know, the two titles, words in his title are, you know, leader and speaker. He's not leading and he's not speaking out. And that's because he's constrained by the dynamics of the caucus he's desperately trying to lead or corral is probably a better term. But if you can't condemn this, you actually are incapable of leading. If you can't condemn this, which is one of the lowest bars you could possibly imagine, Yes, the former president and current person running for president again shouldn't have had dinner and been invited into his home, a, a, a notorious white supremacist, Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite. What can you condemn? And so it's great that Republicans are stepping up, particularly in the Senate, particularly Mitt Romney. But we've come to expect that from Romney. Everyone else still tiptoeing, finding a way to yeah. rationalize. And then there's the folks who are still silent. Grow a spine, people. This isn't hard. <laughs> well, I listen to... to to Poppy's point, it took a while. I mean, they, uh -huh. they stuck their finger up to, to, exactly to sort of right. see which way the wind was blowing uh, with this. And it took a while. I, look, I think it's, I think that there should be so many people speaking out that if we ran it, you know, it would take all day to get all of the sound bites on CNN yep. for people. But there, there we have it. I do have to say, people are going to go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe Don Lemon is saying something positive about <laughs> Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence yeah. was the most emphatic 
had the correct response. He should not have done it, period, and he should apologize. I think he went even further than Mitt Romney. Now, I don't know if that's because he's running for president. I don't know what that he has, you know, presidential hopes. For a second, uh, this will sound off angle, but it is related. Pence was someone who stood up to the president on January 6th, right? And one of the things we learned from the subsequent reporting of the last couple months is that there was sort of like a team crazy and a team normal Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. Trump. There were some people who encouraged his worst impulses around trying to hold on to power and others who fought it. And you do have to ask whether or not a dinner like this happened because there are fewer and fewer people who will say no to the things that do not make sense for the former leader of the free world to be doing. Is that how you end up at a dinner like that? Yeah, I I think the answer is self-evident. I mean, the answer is no. It's yeah. all team crazy all the time. But that's, that's implications all who's left. for this campaign. Right? Of course Going it does. Forward. This is this is what a second Trump term would look like. And it's Donald Trump's impulse, right? This desire to never offend anyone who might say anything positive about him, no matter how crazy, far out and extremist they may be. Um, and that will be the undoing. We're already seeing it in real time. But can I say one thing that stood out to me on that front yesterday, listening to these Republicans, seeing these statements come in as they were returned to Capitol Hill, they knew they were going to get asked about this by reporters. So many of them blamed it on staffing issues, and they yeah. always sidestep the issues. I covered Trump. This is always what happens. When it's his attorneys, they blame Rudy Giuliani for something that was said. When it's something like this, they say, I don't know who let him in the door. Well, it was Trump. Right. I mean, it's his club. He hosted. It's a private club. It's not like a Ruby Tuesdays where anyone can just go in and have dinner. And I think that is something that stood out to me, is even when there are Republicans criticizing yes. him. And I don't think fair. it was yeah. an unwitting, uh, no. you know, Amy, I've seen some sort of like, he, how could he have known who came to, like, oh. I can't go to dinner with a former yeah. president with some, someone. Sorry, this is a Wendy. He still has secret right. service. No he sense. still has a secret service around him. Yeah. And aren't these people supposed to be vetted? That was a point we were making I don't know, yesterday. Caitlin, do Should they vet? They... Would they vet? <laughs> they don't vet if you're yeah. like a anti-Semite or not, they bet if you have, like, weapons or a questionable yeah. criminal background. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Google machine yeah. works, yeah. and I think you would That's see something exactly. that yeah. doesn't make any sense to Google do. Machine. Neither, <laughs> neither, <laughs> like neither, neither Kanye nor, nor, nor Nick Fuentes were exactly yeah. unknown in these corridors. That's the thing. But, but to your point, it's this, and you could hear it from some of the senators, this still impulse to find rationalizations, to deflect blame. He is a 70-plus-year-old man who was a former president of the United States, and we continue to this, infantilize him, and it's totally absurd. Isn't this, to your earlier point, John, about McCarthy. I mean, isn't this McCarthy essentially acknowledging his view that the ends justify the means? 100%. And it's now incumbent upon Republicans in the House to decide if that's worth it for them. Yeah. I think uh, but, they've but, decided think they that. Decided. Yeah. Right. This I mean, is. Well, <laughs> and making, no. despite the statements I, they'll make saying this should be our. Well, so how to assess a statement? Do so, they ever mention his name? Do they ever say what needs to be done? Do they ever say if they would do it? If you don't hear any of those things and somebody's condemnation, it's not really a condemnation. But then the, uh, the uh, knee jerk is. He's, but he's not an anti-Semite. No one asked if he was an anti-Semite. They just thought, is it appropriate right. for him to be doing and, what he's And this doing? is all about vote counting ahead of the January 3rd vote, right? You know, this is that McCarthy can't afford to lose anybody. So he's terrified of alienating even the people who might defend Nick Fuentes and, and Kanye, let alone offending Donald Trump. Well, he needs their votes. That's right. That's John Evelyn, Audie Cornish, that was a great conversation. Okay. Thank you Thanks, both. Guys. Very much. Up next, something very different, but something you got to see. The world's largest active volcano erupting in Hawaii for the first time in nearly four decades. Also this. 
There you go. There you are with your co-hosts. Um, how do you? <laughs> I feel like I feel I like, like the turtleneck. Thank the you. turtleneck is very Christmassy it's too. A, like it's it. very Andy Williams Christmas special. How <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> do you want home. people to feel in the morning? Because a lot of these shows, oh, yeah, obviously, you're a new night. show. But when the people first get up Straight in the morning, ahead. you know, what's the vibe you want to give people? <laughs> Andy Williams Christmas special. You guys. The world's largest volcano is erupting for the first time in almost 40 years. Well, as you can hear and see, lava is flowing down the side of the volcano. The images come out of the Mauna Loa on Hawaii's big island. Officials are telling surrounding communities that they are not in imminent danger. As of now, let's bring in, though, our chief climate correspondent, Mr. Bill Weir. Good morning to you. Good to see you. So 40 years and then this. What is it? This is so thrilling. I can't even tell you. The volcanologists have been waiting. This is one of the most measured volcanoes in the world. Volcanologists. Volcanologists have been waiting for this event for a long time. They're studying it intensely and native Hawaiians. And I'll explain that in a second. But uh, this is not the kind of volcano that spews big ash clouds like we saw in Iceland or other parts in the South Pacific. It's the kind that sort of oozes this mesmerizing lava. There's fountains small and large, popping that magma up there. The park, Volcanoes uh, National Park, is open with some restrictions today. So the people who are lucky enough to be there are going to see this. And here is why native Hawaiians are so excited. Take a look at this. Luka is a native Hawaiian practitioner on Kilauea, the most active of the volcanoes on the Big Island. And he carries on the belief that this molten power is evidence of the goddess Pele. Even when she is rearranging entire neighborhoods with the kind of eruption that came in 2018, Pele is described with an affection normally reserved for temperamental relatives. Imagine if the whole world looked at their their environment as their grandmother or their father. They'd, They'd treat them very differently, you know? And so that's how we try and treat our environment in that same way. We look at them as as family. To a Hawaiian, Volcanoes National Park is as sacred as the Vatican to Catholics or Mecca to Muslims. We are headed to pay our homage to Pele as we head towards the glow on the horizon of the Kilauea volcano. And it's about 4 a.m. and the line of tourists is already here as people race to get their best viewing spot as these splatters of magma and hopefully a glimpse into the lava lake. That's from The Wonderlist, now streaming on Discovery Plus, by the way. Uh, but it's so cool that the, the tourists will actually get to experience the double eruption right now. By the way, for clarification, you said a big ash with an ASH cloud, right? <laughs> Instead, well, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. There's some big ash clouds. You saw, you, we saw in what you just showed, you said rearranging neighborhoods, yeah. right? So how do they know, volcanologists, how do officials know that this is a threat to They the can surrounding? measure sort of the seismic activity, the number of volcan- or, uh, earthquakes, doubled in since September, so they know something's coming, but they still don't know precisely when it'll pop. Uh, right now, the lava's flowing northward. Most of the communities are to the south. That can shift, but the biggest concern really is uh, 
um, is what's in the air, the gases that come off, and Pele's hair. Uh, that's these thin strands of glass that wow. if you breathe them can be really dangerous. But right now, it uh, looks like nobody's in, in any danger. Fascinating. Always a pleasure. Good, Good to, to see you, Don. Congrats you. on the new date. I know. You like this? I like it's it. It's nice. Huh? Like it. Thank you, Bill Weir. You Appreciate bet. it. All right. On top of those remarkable images, we're also seeing an incredible reunion this morning. 51 years in the making, a woman who had been kidnapped as a toddler finally got to meet her real family. Plus this. I love this movie so much, I was just telling him. The star of the classic film Dirty Dancing, revealing which of our favorite characters will be seen in the sequel. That's right. There's a sequel. I can do it. We're going to do this? Don't. Are we going to do the lift? No. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can do that. Well, this morning, a family in Texas has been reunited with their daughter more than 50 years after she was abducted when she was just 22 years old. A DNA match made this all possible. Let's go uh, straight to CNN's Ed Lavendera in Dallas. Wow. What a story. Uh, Overwhelmingly emotional, this story. Uh, Melissa uh, Highsmith was abducted when she was 22 months old. Her mother had... uh, Uh, hired a a babysitter because she needed to go to work. The babysitter came to the house, took the child, and they disappeared. 51 years later, the parents get a DNA test. It comes back a few weeks ago uh, that it is connected to uh, their daughter's children. And that triggers a relationship that culminated this past weekend with the family reuniting. You can imagine what this family has been through in the last few days, and they've been talking about it uh, since all of this news has broken. It is overwhelming, but at the same same time, um, it's it's just the most wonderful feeling in the world. I just couldn't believe it. I thought I would never see her again. And they said, Dad, she's alive. (laughs) And I started crying. Melissa Highsmith's parents had lived in Illinois for a time. They had been back in Fort Worth. Essentially, parents and this woman had been living in the same town, had no idea. And now Melissa Highsmith is discovering that she has four other siblings, and the family is going through this process of getting to know each other once again. And what about what happened to the babysitter? Well, investigators in Fort Worth say that they will try to figure out um, more of the details as to what happened surrounding the circumstances of of this abduction and kidnapping. So um, it's it's not exactly clear. Melissa Highsmith has said in interviews that she confronted uh, the woman she believed to be her mother for so long. um, And then things started spiraling. (laughs) The story started unraveling after that. But what exactly is going to happen to this woman is not exactly clear. It sounds like the statute of limitations might have been uh, might have passed. It was 20 years. Um, So we will have to see exactly what Fort Worth police do next, but they say they will continue to investigate the details surrounding this abduction. All right. Ed Lavendera, thank you. Senate lawmakers set to vote on landmark legislation today to protect same-sex marriages. What to expect? Straight ahead. Plus this. Why do you think there were 200,000 people that voted for you, but not for Herschel Walker? Wait until you see this interview Caitlin just did with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. He really opens up on the high-stakes Senate runoff election uh, ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
He now co-anchors CNN's new morning show, CNN This Morning. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Don Lemon. Yep, I got to stay up way past my bedtime last night to hang out with Stephen Colbert of The Late Show. We talked about this new gig here with these two folks, and now it's been waking up early for us. But, you know, it's, I can be a little bit grumpy. I can be a bitch in the morning. <laughs> Interesting. Anybody can relate to that? I'm sure. Just being honest. On CNN, on CNN, are you allowed to say because you can't say it here. It's basic cable. You can say You can say well. Yeah, you can say That's, can say, that's worth it cable. right there. You can say it. I've said, I've said much worse on, on CNN. <laughs> I was going to ask if you were G-rated, and you weren't. <laughs> no, he asked me if, we, if I got any advice from any uh, other morning show anchors, and I was telling him about what Gail King said to me, and I was actually quoting Gail, who said something very nice. She said, um, you never get used to the hours because they are... I won't say the word this early in the morning, um, itty. And she said, but it is one of the best jobs in television because it's an honor to have people wake up with you. And so I agree with that, to people in their home. But there was also, we had a funny moment where we did, we actually did a shot on television. Last of night. what? Of tequila. Espresso? Tequila. <laughs> Come on. In honor Water. of New Year's Eve on CNN. So he said, if you can't drink on CNN on New Year's Eve, then you can drink on my show. And so we did a shot. And, of course, you know, that was probably, he was just giving it to our boss, which was his executive producer not so long ago. There's that. I'll watch it all tonight. Not with the kids. (laughs) CNN This Morning continues right now. Top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. So glad to have you here. We're glad to be in your homes this early in the morning. We have a lot of news to get to, from threats of imprisonment to torture, why the families of Iranian soccer players could face consequences if the players don't fall in line ahead of today's match against the U.S. Also, a CNN exclusive with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. He is here in studio to react what's happening with the economy possible rail strike is there a recession coming china a lot ahead with him and also this morning i sat down with georgia governor brian kemp yesterday he's now out on the campaign trail with the republican senate candidate in his state herschel walker after initially keeping him at an arm's length we'll talk about what's different this time around two big cnn interviews uh, to get to but we're going to begin with soccer and a geopolitical standoff Talk about pressure. When the U.S. and Iran play their highly anticipated match at the World Cup this afternoon, the Iranian players will be competing under extreme duress. CNN has learned that they have been warned by their government to behave or their families will be tortured and imprisoned. Last week, the Iranian players refused to sing their national anthem before a match against England. Jamana Karache is live for CNN this morning in Istanbul. Hello to you, Jamana. Thank you so much for joining us. What are you learning about these threats? Well, Don, what we understand from a security source who's involved in the security of the World Cup and who has been monitoring uh, the movements of uh, security agents from the regime who are in Doha for the games, 
after that first match, as you mentioned, when the team didn't sing the national anthem, which was seen as a sign of support for protesters back home, quite an embarrassment really uh, for the regime and humiliation. And what we understand from the source is after that game, the players met with members of the feared Revolutionary Guard Corps who threatened them and intimidated them, telling them uh, that they have to, quote, behave sing the national anthem, not take part in any sort of uh, political moves against the government, any sort of protest, or their families back home will face torture and violence. And we understand, on from this source that there's a large number of uh, regime security agents in Qatar right now monitoring the team uh, and making sure that they don't mingle with anyone outside the squad. Here's a question, though, because not every player, Tamana, lives in, uh, in Iran, who plays for Iran, actually lives in Iran. Could the government actually do something to these players and their families out of the country? Well, this is really a concern. I mean, this is a regime, Don, that has a history of targeting and plotting against dissidents and opposition figures outside the country. I mean, there have been uh, plots and attempts against dissidents here in Turkey, where I am, and in the U.S. We know that security agencies there did thwart plots against uh, dissidents uh, and opposition figures in the past. Uh, and this is really not a threat that is uh, only within Iran's borders. It goes way beyond that. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we heard from an opposition uh, TV news channel that's based in London saying that three of its journalists had been informed by London's Metropolitan Police that there was a serious, credible threat, an imminent threat against them and their families uh, by Iranian agents in the UK. Uh, so there's a lot of concern on, in the past week, I've gotten so many messages from Iranians around the world who are concerned about fans who are opposed to the regime, who are currently in Doha, and as we heard from the source, saying that there are, uh, there's a large number of regime security operators who are currently in the country. Jamana, thank you so much for your reporting. Appreciate it. Also this morning, the White House is closely watching the protests that are unfolding across China because of COVID lockdowns. President Biden and his team are carefully weighing how to respond. They're reacting cautiously to the scenes like this one that have been playing out. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, it's been really notable to me that the administration has been focused on the substance of China's COVID policy, those zero COVID policies that Xi Jinping was trying to achieve, rather than on any police response to the protests that we're seeing play out. Yeah, I mean, Caitlin, I can tell you that publicly the White House is treading very carefully around this issue, uh, showing real sensitivity and caution as they're talking about these events and these events that are now taking place not only just in China, but have spread even to the United States with protests on certain uh, college campuses, for example, here. Uh, now, two things that the White House has made clear is that, one, it generally supports any people's right to peacefully protest, and two, that it doesn't see Beijing's zero COVID uh, policy as sound policy. But as we saw at the White House briefing room yesterday, beyond that, uh, they are being very careful not to go too far. Uh, you know, I asked a senior official yesterday what role the U.S. might play as people in China are asking for and crying out for more uh, freedom. And they said, look, for the time being, it's best to leave things out. We are monitoring things very carefully. I think all of that just goes to capture uh, how much sensitivity there is around this issue. As uh, you know, 
though U.S. and Chinese relations have really reached a low point and there are efforts to try to mend those relations. Yeah, and Biden just met with the president of China not that long ago. MJ, I also want to ask you about something else that's really important that's playing out, which is the fact that we are on the verge of this rail strike potentially. And Biden took this step, an aggressive step yesterday that uh, wasn't always expected from him, saying that Congress should actually pass legislation to resolve this, saying that his top lieutenants who have been dealing with this basically don't see any path forward at the bargaining table at this time. What is the White House saying about this? Yeah, you know, the very, very last thing that the president wants to see is these railroad workers going on strike. Uh, It would be an economic nightmare, obviously, particularly before the holiday season. And this is precisely why we saw the president take this almost last resort step of calling on Congress to intervene, to pass a bill that would essentially force everyone to adopt this agreement. Uh, Just keep in mind, though, you know, earlier this year when this agreement was reached, the president himself was very closely involved and it was a real celebration when that agreement uh, came to fruition. And so now the White House is very invested in making sure that things don't fall apart at the last minute. Uh, Now, as far as this vote, uh, this bill on Capitol Hill, my uh, Hill colleagues are reporting that the votes seem to be there in the Senate, but the timing is really up in the air. It could end up happening sometime this week. It could also get pushed back until next week, too. Yeah, we're waiting to see what the Senate does. MJ Lee, thank you. So let's dig a little deeper on the economic impact of a potential rail strike. If the two sides cannot reach an agreement soon, industry officials have estimated that a strike could cost the economy more than $2 billion per day. Freight rail makes up a huge chunk of the American supply chain. A strike means food prices could skyrocket because rail is absolutely crucial in getting those products to consumers. Even gas prices could increase given 300,000 barrels are moved daily by rail. And about 75 percent of all cars and trucks built in the U.S. are imported or imported, I should say here, are moved by rail. That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. And if you're a commuter, you may be in trouble, too, as nearly 97 percent of rail passenger rail used by Amtrak usually runs on freight lines. And on top of all of that, the holidays are right around the corner, meaning this strike could come during peak buying season. All right, now to a CNN exclusive. We're just talking about Congress preparing to act to avert this rail shutdown. President Biden warning if that happened, it would devastate the economy if we had a strike like that. So joining me now to talk about this and a lot more is Bank of America. It's Brian Moynihan, chairman and CEO, one of the biggest banks in the world. You know where the economy is headed. We'll get into all of it. We really appreciate you coming in to CNN this morning. First of all, congratulations on the new show to you and your colleagues. Thank you. Uh, So look, things like the rail strike or the war in Ukraine and what happens in China with shutdowns, those are all sort of things that can really derail the economy. And everybody knows that. And we've been dealing with them for quite a period of time. But if you look at the core economy, our team has a a mild recession predicted in the middle of 2023 and then coming back out of it later in 2023. Now, that was predicted to happen this year, earlier this year. The, there was going to be a real slowdown. The Fed yeah. was going to raise rates. And it's all pushed out largely because of one thing, which is the U.S. consumer who is spending money. And we just got our spending from Thanksgiving to last Saturday. And it was up 3% over last year, which was up 23% over the year before, 20% over where it was in 19. You see booking travel and things like that. You see the consumers employed. Um, you see them spending money. You see them having money in their accounts. Now, that means inflation has to be tackled by the Fed, but the consumer actually is both a buffer against that and also makes it difficult. What I think so interesting about you, Brian, is you've been like the 
you know, the optimist in all of this. So you just said, yes, a mild recession next year, but we'll get through it by the following year. Jamie Dimon warned this summer, head of J.P. Morgan, that an economic hurricane, his words, are coming. We just don't know how strong a hurricane. Do you see an economic hurricane? Well, the hurricane season's now closed, so having a house in the Carolinas, I'm used to dealing with that. But, you know, in the end of the day, the belief was if any of those horribles came together, you could have really a different outcome than the Fed tightening. And the Fed is tightening in an unprecedented uh, way because we have an unprecedented un- inflation, 40, 50 year long inflation. So what does that affect first? Housing. Obviously, that's changed dramatically. Um, but rent increases are only coming through now. So in the end of the day, the consumer is held in well. And the end of the day, the consumer ha- stays reasonably strong because they're employed. So I'm hearing no economic hurricane from Brian Moynihan. Am I a, right? A mild recession. Okay. A mild recession. Okay. So let's tick through all those things. Housing matters to everyone. It is much more expensive to buy a house now because of mortgage rates. And your own research at Bank of America shows how much rents have increased. So people feel like they're out of hope. When is it going to get better for housing for Americans? Well, so this is the toughest thing because you have to slow down the economy. You have to slow down inflation. And the way you do that is raising interest rates. The Fed wants us to buy fewer homes. That's exactly right. And so what is the intended outcome of their policies doesn't feel good when you're trying to buy a home. If you're a young family trying to buy your first home, whatever. So that'll straighten out. Now, you have to sort housing into two pieces. One is the people who have mortgages that are outstanding, locked in below 5%, 4%, 3%, 90% below 5%. 80 percent below four, 50 percent below three. They're locked in for 30 years. Yeah, but other folks. But when you go to buy a house, you're feeling that effect. And that's slowed down dramatically. And that's why the home builders and others. But that's the intended outcome. What will happen is as we see inflation slow down and you're seeing the rate of growth of inflation slow down, still inflation, you'll see rates come back down to more of the target rate. And you'll see the adjustments come through. And that, that'll happen. That'll take almost two years. Two the, years of pain for people trying to rent or buy a house. Two years of slower activity. Yeah. Now, the rental side of that is the key. And that's rents have increased. And you're seeing rents have increased and already starting to decrease in some town, uh, cities around the country. But that's where you have to be more concerned because half the people in America pay rent. They don't own their home. Yeah. And that is where it's affected. That's still ahead of us. And millions of them have a lot of outstanding credit card debt. And can you just help us understand why credit card interest rates are at a record high. Now, I understand the Fed's raising rates, but the Fed fund's target rate compared to APR seems extreme. Yeah. And I know there's not collateral to back credit cards, but like, do they really need to be that high? Well, the re- reality is a third of our credit cards pay off every month. They don't even pay interest, right? You know, so we give you the money for 30 days later, 45 days later, you pay us. Two thirds no- of Americans yeah. don't. And then the ones that do, it, the rate structure is far lower than the stated rate structure just because of all the different things that have gone on. So, look, those rates adjust with the market. They'll come back down with the market. They were low for a long time. But the reality is, is that the good news is for America is the delinquencies on credit cards mm-hmm. are low. Um, they are much lower than they were in 19, which is very good credit times for banking system. So our job is to actually help our customers continue to prosper and live. And, and the key thing is, remember, unemployment's at 3.6, mid threes. Right. The worst projections are get to fives were, were, where it was, you know, in the 17, 18 range. You met with President Biden, I think it was in July at the White House. I wonder how you, presidents get a lot of um, credit when the economy does well and all the blame when it does poorly. How do you think he's handling this economy? Well, in the end of the day, he's dealing with a very unprecedented time. So, I, you know, the job of the American people is to decide that, and they just had an election. What, do you, what does Brian Moynihan think? I, I think our economy is holding on better than the rest of the world right now. Okay. Now, the reality is, is did we 
give more stimulus than you know you could theoretically calculate, but nobody knew at the time. Too much stimulus, it, lesson that, learned. Yeah, but that was to, to the last administration, this administration. But nobody knew at the time, and I think yeah. that's where people can look through the rearview mirror and always have yeah. a great point of view. The sports writers can, but <laughs> the players on the field had to make a decision: was it right or not? And they yeah. did. Now we have to adjust to that decision. That's where you're seeing the Fed tighten quickly. I want to talk about what's going on with workers. You have you employ so many people at Bank of America. Um, you've also taken, you have led on wages, increasing wages now to $22 an hour at the bottom. They're going to be $25 an hour by 2025. But real wages are down for folks because of inflation. And something's going on with workers. Um, I was home in Minnesota this weekend. Coffee shops were closed. They couldn't find workers. Restaurants can't find enough workers. We're seeing unionization at companies that never saw it before. Starbucks, Amazon, news outlets like BuzzFeed. What is happening with the American worker well, the labor markets got very tight, so the dynamics shifted that uh, with the, the kind of employment levels we had, you know, claims for unemployment still are bumping along at very low levels, lo- levels that haven't been seen since the numbers of workers are like 25% lower. So, you know, the, the labor market's very tight, and so the negotiation power moves around, right? I mean, that's what happens. The quit rates got way high. What you're seeing that now is mitigate, which is actually good from the Fed perspective in terms of the economy, but you're seeing that mitigate. Now, how do we think about that? Yeah. Our job is to provide a, an ability for an 18-year-old to join our company and be here their entire career and you know, get themselves educated and trained with us. And you do that all day. I just celebrated a 50, 55, 60, 65, and a 75-year employee the other day. Mm. So think of 75, do some math, and think that the person started as 18 you, and you, went to college. That's what great employers do. And so yeah. our turnover rate moved up like everybody else has already moved back down. I, my guess is by early next year, we'll be back in line where it was in 19, which is good. But that takes employers really saying, how do I holistically help a person develop yeah, a career? like you guys gave money, a lot of it, to employees to pay for childcare yep. during the pandemic when you asked them to come back. I want to talk about China. You do a fair amount of business in China. How worried are you about what we're seeing on the streets of China and, 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 and Xi Jinping's tight grasp on power and zero COVID policy? I, th- I think the thing we have to think about China is they're, they're still dealing with COVID the way we were dealing with it in 2020 in the spring, which is your choices to shut down. And that is very disruptive to the supply chain, the internal economy. We've dropped our projections in the company down to 3% GDP growth for economy. It generally always grew at 5 to 6. So it's affecting their economy and it's affecting the worldwide economy. The shortages, we, you know, Don talked about you know, uh, the railroads and not having yeah. shortages. If we don't have the goods, we can't ship them. And that, that supply chain is still not evened out. And that, that is somewhat good news in that that stuff still is bought and has to get through the system. But it's bad news because it'll slow people's purchasing down because they don't think they can get something. And that's, that's kind of the issue in China. So leave aside the... You know, the healthcare struggle and the human struggle, which is horrible. But the reality is, from an economic perspective, their shutting down is, is causing the world disruption. And they really don't have a choice, it seems, because they don't have the structure that we have in the United States with vaccines and, and, and people through the and system. You, so you, you're concerned about we, We're always concerned about Okay. Um, Twitter. Bank of America is one of the big banks that financed Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk himself tweeted a few weeks ago, Twitter could go bankrupt. You're hanging on to a lot of that debt. Um, the Financial Times is reporting, you know, you guys, the big banks, are waiting for a business plan from us. Here's what it's going to look like to unload that debt. Have you gotten the business plan? What do you make of how he's leading? Well, I, that's not something that we talk about with clients, uh, customers. Have you, have you but I, I don't know. And by the way, I'm the worst person to be in the middle of a, a, a credit decision because that's not what I do in the company. Yeah. But if you look at it just on leverage finance, which is people talk about, at the end of the day, we market to market every Friday. 
you know, so it's all through the P&L and whatever it impacts. And, you know, look, he, he'll run the company the way he does. He owns it. They have tremendous you know, equity in it. And so we'll see what happens. Hoping for the best? Uh, we don't hope. We, we plan for the best. Okay. I do want to ask you about crypto. You have been very cautious always on cryptocurrency. Um, look, look what has happened. Look at FTX collapsing. Look at this week, BlockFi, which is a crypto lender that I think it's important people know lends to, it was for average folks. This was for the Main Street average Joe collapsing. What went wrong with well, crypto? I, I, what went wrong is I think it was a you know, speculative asset got very high and then came crashing down and the leverage embedded and all that happened. But that was relatively predictable. And many of us said, be cautious here. The good news is, if you think about the history of it, the rate of movement out of our accounts into crypto has slowed way down, which means investors have, have gotten more cautious. A lot of people got cautious. fleeced, and you guys are so highly regulated. Yeah. I mean, watch any of those, you know, and yeah. testimony before Congress. Or so, And, like, where are the regulators on this? Is it safe for anyone to have a crypto market that exists anymore without regulation? Well, if you, you have to back up two things. Blockchain, the technology, very good. We have hundreds of patents on it, literally. Sure. The I'm idea of the, the, the idea of a currency and stuff, it, it's not needed. We can transact in ways that are, that are wonderfully fast. The real-time payment system that, that are connecting around the world. The Fed is building one. We've already built one in the industry. You know, the ability to send money to anywhere in the banking system. You know, these things are important. So are there areas where the industry has to lead in that? Other entrepreneurs saw an opportunity. Yes, the small balance, you know, mm -hmm. cross-border payment. And we're working on stuff to make that easier. I've got to let you go one second. Final question. Politico headline about you a few months ago. The bank CEO preaching sustainability. You are all about green, green, green. Yet you guys keep, you do invest in fossil fuels and oil. Um, you see it as a balance. What's working on climate change? What's not? And should corporations do more at this point than government? Because government seems to not be able to break through. The companies, the corporations around the world, the commitments they've made to make a just transition happen are stunning. You just saw one the other day where uh, I think it was Microsoft agreed to and others agreed to buy uh, renewable power in Ireland. It was like 30 percent of the power or something yeah. like that. I mean, these are stunning commitments by people who see the need to make a transition. But we got to give them time. And we as a company have to help finance that transition. And so we believe that we need the oil and gas companies to make that transition and help lead that. We believe that we need the, you know, uh, renewables company make it, but really what you need is all the operating companies in the world to figure out how they're going to change, how they buy power, what they use in their, in their production capability. And our job is to educate people and do it. And that is the amazing thing you see is the private sector is driving this. We did $200 billion of financing in 2021. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about $100 billion in Paris per year. Our company and many other companies did it likewise. So, so that's what we're driving. more than governments driving it. Uh, Brian Morningham, come back. We really appreciate being here on CNN this morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks Congratulations again. Thank you. Guys, back to you. Fascinating interview there, Poppy. Up next, we're going to talk about a big health headline this morning. If you're having trouble remembering things, scientists say that you can slow your cognitive decline by eating more of this food. We'll explain. I need to go to the farm stand right after this. <laughs> and our Caitlin Collins is down with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and asks him why he is now campaigning with Herschel Walker after trying to avoid him. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. It is half past six, half past seven. This is what's coming up. There's a reason why people tell you to eat your fruits and vegetables. We'll tell you what a new study found. 
Also today, Senate lawmakers are set to vote on landmark legislation to protect same-sex marriage. What to expect on that front ahead, we'll tell you from Capitol Hill. Also this morning, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is sounding off on everything from his, high, his state's high-stakes Senate runoff election that's happening next Tuesday to former President Trump dining with an anti-Semite. We'll give you my in-depth interview coming up. So how many times have you heard this from mom, from everybody, right? Eat your vegetables. No, really, eat your vegetables. There's a new study, and it finds that eating more vegetables and fruits can slow down the rate of memory decline. So joining us now, Dr. Tara Narula is here to explain the benefits. What was I talking about? I can't remember. I was, Eat your broccoli. Yes, I was just going to say mom to was right. My, uh, it's true. <laughs> my memory is terrible. I think we only have so much capacity. Yeah, yeah. well, your mom was right. Yeah. Food is medicine. And we really don't talk about nutrition and the power of nutrition in terms of our health enough. What foods? And so this particular study looked at flavanols, which are a class of flavonoids. Say that three times fast. Flavanol, flavanol, flavanol. <laughs> These are phytochemicals found in plant pigments. And plants have over 5,000 types of flavonoids. And so what we know is that from animal studies and human studies, there's been um, research that has shown that flavonoids can actually protect against possibly cancer, cardiovascular disease, inflammatory disease. And now in this study, they looked at cognition, so brain function. And so researchers looked at about 961 adults who were average age of 80. They followed them for seven years. And at the end of each year, they gave them a diet or food questionnaire to fill out, and they did a cognitive test. And they found that those individuals that ate the most flavonoids, which was about 15 milligrams a day, one cup essentially of dark leafy green vegetables versus five milligrams a day, mm. had a 32% slower rate of cognitive decline. So that's exciting and interesting. Um, and it's definitely one more research study to kind of prove the power of vegetables okay. and fruits. But I have to ask, what is a flavonoid? Yes. So, no one, so where do we no find them, right? So, so they also looked at different types of flavanols, subclasses. And basically, there's something for everyone. So you can find them in spinach, kale, broccoli, but also onions, berries, Don, so strawberries, blueberries, yeah, I love um, berries. wine and tea. Wait, wait, and say that again. Wine. wine. Say again. Oh, wait, you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> and then even some herbs like chives, dill, yeah. tarragon. Um, so really, you can find them in a lot of things that are Fruits, vegetables, seeds, roots, um, that class. I think my favorite fruit is... Wine? Pomegranate, you just told me. Yes. I think Caitlin's correct. <laughs> um, uh, just tequila fruit. No, um, <laughs> pomegranates. I love, I can eat yeah. a pomegranate really? or more every single How day. How does one eat a pom, like eat it? Very carefully. <laughs> seeds? Yeah, I very carefully because I eat the seeds. I love it and I love pomegranate juice. I love everything about so it's just, it is important. We always want to caveat these studies and say that they're mm. not cause and effect, right? This was an observational study. It was also based on self-report. So that may not be the most accurate. It was a population in the Midwest, mostly women, mostly educated, mostly white. So I don't know is if we can really translate mm. this to everybody. Um, and then the important thing is sometimes people who eat plant-based diets or flavonoids actually have other healthy behaviors. So is it the other healthy behaviors that's helping prevent cognitive decline? And finally, mm. it is the whole plant. So it's difficult sometimes to tease out, is it really the flavonoids or flavanols, or is it just the whole plant? My new favorite but word of the day. Flavanols. <laughs> Dream of flavonoids tonight. <laughs> thank you, Doctor. Yes. Doctor, thank you for that. Thank you. Wine. You're supposed thank to you read You're supposed to read <laughs> I had, couldn't remember now. it because I didn't eat my vegetables this morning. <laughs> Today, the Senate will vote on a bill to protect same-sex marriage nationwide. When could this become law?
Yeah, that's huge. Also, Georgia set a, setting a single-day early voting record in the Senate runoff. That's the election, of course, between the Democrat, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent, and Republican Herschel Walker. Up next, we're going to let you see my interview with the Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, who is playing a pivotal role in this election. It reminds me of something you said on the campaign trail recently, which was, you said, who do you want to fight for you in the Senate? Do you want a guy who represents our values like Herschel Walker, or do you want somebody who has voted with President Biden 96% of the time? Does Herschel Walker share your values? So this is happening today. The Senate is set to vote on a landmark bill to protect same-sex marriages nationwide. While it does not set a national requirement that all states must legalize same-sex marriage, it would require individual states to recognize another state's legal marriage. Senate's Melanie Zanona joins us live from Capitol Hill this morning. Good morning to you. A major win for Democrats and a rare show of bipartisanship in the Senate. It doesn't go all the way for codification or codifying, but it is a step in the right direction. Yeah, good morning, Don. A big bipartisan moment and a historic moment, not just for Democrats, but for the entire country. This bill had been gaining steam ever since this summer when Roe v. Wade was overturned and when Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that same-sex marriage could be under threat next. But the votes weren't there initially. Democrats really worked behind the scenes with Republicans. They made some changes to the bill. They also delayed the vote until after the midterm elections in the hopes of alleviating some political pressure that some of these GOP senators may have been under. And look, it appears to have paid off because a dozen Republicans voted to advance this bill yesterday. We are expecting a similar amount, if not more, to vote for final passage in the Senate today. But there's still one more step that this has to go through. It still has to go through the House. That could happen in the coming days. We're expecting another big bipartisan vote there since 47 Republicans voted for a different version earlier this summer. But all that to say, this landmark bill could be on President Joe Biden's desk by the end of the week, Don. And Melanie will be following. Thank you, Melanie. Appreciate it. All right. It was a record day of voting in Georgia's Senate runoff. They have had many runoffs in the state there now. More than 300,000 voters turned out to cast their ballots early. It was the most in a single day in the state's history. And it comes after more than 180,000 Georgians voted. When the polls opened over the weekend, there was that early voting that happened on Saturday. So I took a trip yesterday after the show to Georgia to speak with the Republican governor there, Brian Kemp. He is not on the ballot after he just won re-election a few weeks ago, but he is at the center of the race and could be pivotal to Herschel Walker's campaign, who he is now campaigning with. That's a change of pace after Brian Kemp distanced himself from Walker in the midterms ahead of that. It could make all the difference as Walker is appealing to 200,000 voters who voted for Kemp just a few weeks ago, but did not vote for Walker. Here's what Brian Kemp told us. Over 180,000 Georgians have already cast their ballots over the weekend, taking advantage of that extra day of early voting that they got because of that lawsuit that was filed by Senator Warnock. Did you agree with the judge's ruling in that case? I don't even know why there was a discussion on that. Look, people got plenty of time to vote in this election. Let them go vote. Uh, this is going to be a turnout election. My message to people is don't get distracted with things like that. Just get the vote out. So you think it's good that there was that extra day of early voting? Well, I mean, look, counties have always had the option on when they can do early voting or not. So, I mean, I think fighting that fight, uh, we could have been doing other things. But, you know, look, it wasn't my, my decision. I wasn't involved in it. Uh, all that matters is on election day, who's got the most votes. 
Uh, it's it's you know it's really that simple and. Uh, I just think Republicans don't need to get distracted. That's what happened in the last runoff we had here in Georgia, and it didn't turn out very good for us. Well, I want to return to that, but since I have seen you, you've won your reelection. You got about 200,000 more votes than the Republican candidate for Senate, Herschel Walker, did. You're now appearing with him on the campaign trail in a much bigger way than you were last time I saw you. Why now, and why do you think there were 200,000 people that voted for you but not for Herschel Walker? Well, listen, I was focused on making sure that I got reelected. Uh, and I was also, as you know, from our past interviews and what people saw us doing and our campaign doing, it wasn't just helping me, it was helping our whole ticket. We had a really good night here in Georgia. We won every, you know, statewide race Republicans did. Uh, and then we got an incumbent U.S. Senator in a runoff. So we had an incredible night here. Uh, but really, the, to me, the runoff now is a very simple choice. You know, are you going to vote for somebody that's been with Joe Biden 96% of the time, or are you going to vote for somebody that's going to go up there and fight for Georgia? And uh, that's that's the way I'm voting. Well, Herschel Walker was the only Republican who did not win on November 8th on the statewide ticket. What you just said about the choice, something you said, on the, it reminds me of something you said on the campaign trail recently, which was, you said, who do you want to fight for you in the Senate? Do you want a guy who represents our values like Herschel Walker, or do you want somebody who has voted with President Biden 96% of the time? Does Herschel Walker share your values? Well, listen, when I'm talking about going to Washington, D.C. and fighting for what Georgians need, I'm talking about the border, 40-year high inflation, astronomical gas prices since Joe Biden took office, and the agenda that Raphael Warnock has supported up there. I mean, to me, it's that simple in this race. Uh, and that's, you know, why I'm voting for Herschel Walker. I want somebody to go up there and go fight for our state and fight for our citizens, not fight to support a president that really, in my view, uh, is not upholding the values of what Georgians want. And you think Herschel Walker does that when it comes to values? I think he will do that in the United States Senate. You're campaigning with Herschel Walker, but... Senator Warnock has kind of been campaigning with you. You have been featured in some of his ads. He is showing voters who cast their ballots for well, you. Well, they did a, did a press conference talking about, you know, me and my agenda, which, uh, you know, hopefully because they did that, people will listen to what I've been telling them to, to vote for a guy that's going to fight for us. It's pretty rare to see a Democratic Senate candidate campaigning with people who voted for the Republican governor. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Warnock's got a lot of resources. He can do whatever he wants. But at the end of the day, I don't think any of that stuff matters. The money doesn't matter. You know, somebody's views that's going on a television commercial doesn't necessarily matter. It matters what people think and what they're dealing with in their everyday lives. And I know people are dealing with 40-year high inflation. I know that they know that the border's a disaster. And you got Joe Biden saying after the November election, he's not going to change a thing. And uh, I just think there's a lot of Georgians that want things to change in Washington, D.C., and they want people fighting to lower gas prices and lower 40-year high inflation. Uh, interest rates are going up. I mean, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people starting to get laid off, big companies that are out there. Thankfully, our economy uh, has been more insulated than most um, around the country, and we're very thankful and blessed by that. But, you know, we don't want to risk that continuing into the future. You talked about lessons learned after the last runoff election. What are those lessons? Well, I think that's one reason we controlled our own destiny on our ground game, which we've you know turned that over to the Senate Leadership Fund, and they're they're out there working, they're knocking doors, we're getting people to the polls, which is what this race is all about. 
and uh, we built something pretty special here that worked. It didn't just work for me, it worked for the rest of the Republicans on the state ticket. And uh, we're trying to make that work, hopefully, in this runoff. We'll find out on next Tuesday. Since I last saw you, Georgia's highest court has reinstated a ban on abortion after six weeks. It basically put on hold a decision by a lower court that overturned that 2019 law that you signed into law. If the appeals court comes back and overturns the law, what will you do? Well, we're going to keep fighting the legal process. I mean, we knew three years ago when we passed this bill that it was going to take a long time to be uh, to get it through the courts and to get it implemented. And we knew there would be a lot of people fighting us. Um, but that's the path that we've taken and that's what we'll do. And so we're just going to wait and see uh, what the court does. And, and, you know, then we'll reassess. I believe that they'll uphold our law and it'll be implemented. Let me get your reaction to something that former President Trump has been under fire for in recent days, which is having dinner with Nick Fuentes, this outspoken white supremacist and anti-Semite. Well, I, I just put a statement out there. I'll, I'll let that statement speak for itself. I mean, that was a bad decision. There's no place for that in the Republican Party. I know he's got uh, you know, his answer to that question, and I'll let him speak to that, but my views on that are, are very clear. He has defended it saying he was a guest of Kanye West, who was his guest. But he hasn't criticized or denounced, denounced the statements that we've seen, this hateful language from Nick Fuentes. Well, listen, I, I am not privy to who said what and all of that. I'll, I'll just let my statement speak for itself. It's very clear. In recent days, you have filed paperwork to create a federal PAC of your own. It makes people wonder if you've got <laughs> some of your own future national ambitions. What would you tell them? I would tell them that we're working hard to get Herschel elected, uh, Herschel Walker elected to the United States Senate, and that's what people in Georgia need to stay focused on. We cannot get distracted with other things, and so that PAC's designed uh, to do that, but also to help federal candidates in the future in our state. I mean, what we built with our ground game and the Georgian's first uh, committee was very effective uh, at the state level, and we want to have that same tool available to help some of our friends that may be serving in Congress or perhaps, you know, other nominees or other folks in the future. And uh, so we thought it was wise to do that, to capitalize off of uh, really uh, a great effort that we put together and to continue to build off that to keep our state in good hands and, and have people in Washington, D.C. that are voting Georgia values. Could that be to help other people who are running for the Republican nomination for president, potentially? Well, that's what not that's not what the focus is. You know, you do not you need to worry about uh, next Tuesday. That's what I'm worried about. Staying focused on getting Herschel over the goal line. Next Tuesday is obviously what everyone's eyes are on. But you did see the former president announce that he will be running in 2024. I did see that. Would you support him in that run? Well, I hadn't seen who else is going to run. So I'm going to keep focused on getting Herschel elected to the United States Senate. We do not need to get distracted from that. That was so fascinating. I, I felt like he really opened up. I think he's a little more emboldened. He just won re-election handily. Uh, I thought what he said there at the end was really interesting. Of course, Trump actively tried to make sure that he was not the next governor or that he did not get re-elected as governor of Georgia. He did so, and it'll be interesting to see how he uses that federal Well, pack. it's interesting. He said, I'm going to take a wait-and-see attitude. Let's see who the other person or other people are. are. Yeah. yeah, the attitude we've seen from other Republicans. I also want to know, while we were on the ground yesterday, yeah. we were very busy driving all around, Jason Morris and I, 
We did also go to a Senator Warnock event to talk to him. He was there meeting with students, a huge line of students waiting to talk to him. Of course, they're also trying to get those 200,000 voters who voted for Kemp and not for Walker. They're also trying to appeal to them. I did ask Senator Warnock about this controversy that is happening with Trump and his meeting with Nick Fuentes. Anti-Semitism has no place uh, in our uh, political system. And um, what we know about the former president is that he is quite skilled and well-practiced in the politics of division. My opponent is his acolyte. I'm proud of the fact that Georgia, in one fell swoop, sent its first African-American senator and its first Jewish senator to the United States Senate. Uh, And we've been able to do great work for Georgia together. We'll see if Georgia does that again next Tuesday. If they send Senator Warnock back to Washington, we'll have more of that interview tomorrow. Yeah, it's hard to knock him off of message. Warnock is very good at staying on message in interviews, as Kemp is. That's great. I mean, they don't do a lot of interviews. The fact that you could go, I don't know how you got to Georgia, did those interviews and back, but good <laughs> job. Sleep a lot last night. <laughs> didn't sleep. They don't talk. I mean, Kemp barely does interviews and, and Warnock I haven't seen a lot, so I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Thank you, Caitlin. Okay, Russia continues to launch airstrikes on critical infrastructure across Ukraine. That has left millions without power, and the cold, cold winter is upon us. Up next, we'll talk to former astronaut Scott Kelly, who was just on the ground in Ukraine, just met with President Vladimir Zelensky. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The First Lady of Ukraine is urging the world not to forget the tragedy Ukrainians are facing this Christmas. Her plea comes as Russia continues to launch airstrikes on critical infrastructure across Ukraine, leaving millions without power ahead of the cold winter months. Captain Scott Kelly, a retired NASA astronaut and ambassador for Ukraine's United 24 fundraising platform, just went to Ukraine, met with President Zelensky and joins us now uh, from Kiev. Thank you so much for being here Good for you for going. And you were, not only did you meet with the president, you were focused on the children. You went to a children's hospital. What did you see? Yeah, yeah, Poppy, I went to this uh, children's hospital in Kiev, the largest children's hospital in Ukraine called Akhmadit. And uh, absolutely inspiring to talk to the doctors, the nurses, the administrative personnel that have been living there uh, for the last several months in the hospital. Kind of like being in space where you're, at work when you wake up, you're at work when you go to sleep. So uh, a little bit similar there, but also seeing the children, some uh, severely injured by um, you know Putin's attacks on this country, um, but also to see their spirit. You know, they're, even though their bodies have been broken by this, their spirit has not been broken. Listen, uh, it, it, I see you're in your vest. It gets very cold there. Right. So there's there's a great, great need for a lot of things there. Right. They need um, many people need food. They need shelter and they need clothing. Um, The interesting thing for me is all the money that is being sent from the United States. A lot of that's going to the munitions and ammo and towards a war effort. But what about for people who actually need help there? Speak to us about the need on the ground, please. Yeah, Don, that's uh, there's serious need. Uh, I met last night with some of the other uh, U-24 ambassadors with President Zelensky, and uh, their biggest need right now is for uh, power infrastructure, generators, and the fuel to run them because 
Putin and the Russian military is t attacking civilian infrastructure. You know, when I got here, there were no lights on. Uh, slowly, they've been coming back over the last couple of days. But, uh, you know, if we can't get that power to them, people will die over this winter because they don't have electricity and heat and water. I know ambulances is another big need that they have when it comes to that infrastructure that's just being pummeled by Russia. But you did you came face to face with President Zelensky. What is what did he say? What is what is his biggest concern right now? Yeah, so from a humanitarian uh, perspective, his biggest concern is the electricity, uh, keeping the lights on, the, uh, the heat running. Uh, they have a central heating system, but it uses hot water, but it does require electricity. So uh, right now, that's their biggest need because, you know, the Russian military, um, directed by Putin, is basically committing genocide here by attacking uh, this civilian infrastructure. Um, so, you know, that's the big need right now. Uh, you know, my other focus is raising money for, um, for ambulances. Russia destroys 10 of those a week. And, uh, you know, they save people's lives. So whatever, you know, anyone can do to help in those areas, uh, I would much appreciate it. Obviously, the Ukrainians, uh, of course, um, will as well and really, really need that. Yeah, not just appreciate it. It's life saving. Captain Scott Kelly, thank you for being there. And thank you for joining us to, to share what it's like to be on the ground there. Be safe over there. Yeah. My, my pleasure, Caden. Thank you. All right. Also this morning, Will Smith is speaking out about that infamous slap. It's an emotional new interview from Will Smith. That's ahead. It has been 35 years since the 80s classic Dirty Dancing hit theaters and 35 years was all it took to finally get a sequel. We have the details next. And I owe it all to you. Okay, so it's a timeless classic, hard to believe. It has been 35 years since Johnny pulled Francis Houseman up on stage. Good news for all of our Dirty Dancing fans. The sequel is still in the works. Yeah, it's set to begin. That filming next year, Jennifer Grey says that she'll be reprising her, or reprising, however you want to say it, her role as Baby. She teased a new movie in a recent interview with Extra. It's exciting. I would say that you can count on it being at Kellerman's, returning to Kellerman's. Okay. And um, Baby, quite a few years older. You will see other characters that are from the original. Well, sadly, the one familiar face we won't be seeing, obviously, again, is Patrick Swayze. He lost his battle with pancreatic cancer back in 2009. It won't be the same without him. No, no. And he was so, so great. I mean, they both together, the chemistry, both of them. That moment that was movie. ever. But okay. we tried here on CNN this morning. Whoa! Poppy, I did. I mean, I Watching got Watching a live audition right there on the I just, right. I didn't want her microphones to fall <laughs> off. I didn't want it, you know. Caitlin was very concerned. For me, right? Looking out for me. A lot of movement me. for 7 a.m. in the morning. Well, that was a 6 a.m. hour? It was 6 a.m. hour. No one puts baby in a corner. No one puts poppy in a corner. That's all I'm saying. We'll get the lift right next time. Oh, back. <laughs> right? right? Yes. All right. And seeing this morning continues right now.
so glad that you could join us on this Tuesday morning, November 29th. Welcome everyone to CNN this morning. Good morning to you. A lot to get to. Geopolitical tensions rising ahead of today's big World Cup showdown between the U.S. and Iran. New details about the threats hanging over the Iranian players straight ahead. And two tech giants on a collision course. Elon Musk claiming he received a threat from Apple that could crush Twitter. We'll explain. And a rural county is delaying certifying the midterm results. We'll talk about whether or not election denialism is still alive and well in Arizona. We're also going to talk about that with Jay Johnson, former Homeland Security Secretary under President Obama. But we begin this morning with soccer and a geopolitical showdown that could be just hours away with the U.S. and Iran set to play a do-or-die World Cup match. CNN has learned that Iran's players have been warned by their government to, quote, behave if they don't want their families tortured and potentially imprisoned. That warning coming after the Iranian team refused to sing its national anthem before a match against England last week, as you'll recall. Meanwhile, an aggressive Iranian media asking the U.S. men's team captain what it was like to represent a country, and I'm quoting the reporter now, that has discrimination within its own borders. Listen to his response. You say you support the Iranian people, but you're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. Please, once and for all, let's get this clear. My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. Um, Yeah, that being said, you know, there's discrimination uh, everywhere you go. Um, You know, one thing that I've learned, especially from living abroad in the past years and uh, having to fit in in different cultures and kind of assimilate into different cultures, is that in the U.S. we're, we're continuing to make progress uh, every single day. Obviously, it takes longer to understand, and through education, I think it's, it's super important. Like, you just educated me now on the pronunciation of, of your country. So, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a process. I think as, as long as you see progress, uh, that's the most important thing. For perspective on that answer is Bob Lay. He was an on-air broadcaster for seven World Cups for ESPN, including the last time that the U.S. and Iran faced each other in the tournament. That was in France in 1998. He's also the executive founder of Seton Hall's University's Center for Sports Media. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. But I just want to get you to start on that answer from Tyler Adams, because that was a really powerful response, I thought. Wow. Remember, this 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 young professional from Wappinger Falls, New York, is 23 years of age. Uh, and I got to tell you, as a, just as an American sports fan, I was very proud of the way he handled that. Mm-hmm. But it also just shows you um, the atmosphere in that room in Doha, the animus, uh, the, the aggressiveness in the questioning. Because there was some, I mean, Greg Berhalter, the U.S. national team coach, was asked about the positioning of U.S. warships uh, in that area. And why didn't uh, he ask the U.S. government to have the ships move? I mean, that is the tone and tenor of what's going on. But I thought what, what Tyler Adams did was... Uh, uh, composed uh, and of the moment, and it shows you why his teammates elected him captain for the World Cup. You called the game, right, in 98, the Iran-U.S. game. They won 2-1, to one, but it was so different then. The players embraced at the end of it. I believe the Iranian players brought white roses sort of as a sign of, sort of peace. I mean, just can you compare and contrast what's going on then and now? Well, I'll tell you, you know, there was that mixed team picture taken in 1998. Normally, if you're familiar with soccer, after the introductions of the lineups, each team will line up. They'll take Mm -hmm. separate pictures. The United States trying to diffuse this situation between the two nations in the meeting the day before in 1998 proposed this mixed picture, which everyone then went along with. 
Um, I will tell you that the security around that game was intense. You can get, could, could not get within a half mile of the stadium in Lyon without your credential and your ticket. And just before the match, a French military helicopter came down over the field and, and hovered just in a show of strength and, and support. You saw both flags. You know, we've heard so much about the flags in the last couple of days. The pre-revolutionary flag being waved by what they call the gold card expats, those Iranians who had left the nation before the revolution, and those waving the revolutionary flag. But they're all rooting for the same team. Um, it, it was very much charged. But, you know, that was only 19 years or so uh, after the, the hostage situation. But yet, you know, how many people have a contemporaneous memory now, I, I dare say some of you may not, of what happened in 1979? I'm old enough to re- recall that. And still colors what is happening right now today in Doha. Yeah, I do remember that. I'm old enough to uh, remember that. Bob, th- thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning to you. By the way, I see the soccer ball in your, over your left shoulder there. Um, yeah. but I've got, That's I- the ball from South Africa. Oh, wow. nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. you, we talked about the American team, right? But you, uh, you believe yeah. that the Iranian team is under tremendous pressure and, and is in an awkward, unique position. Talk to us about that. Well, I mean, we heard... We saw what happened during the anthem playing in game one. No one sang. And then by your own reporting, which is remarkable, the threats that were levied on the players from the Revolutionary Guard. If you go back on your DVR and watch the, the playing of the anthem during before game two for the Iranians, uh, this is a horrible use of the word, but it's almost applicable. They look like hostages. Some of them are barely moving their lips and, and mouthing it. They are bearing so much pressure here. I mean... All, uh, on top of the uh, the spectators as well. I mean, the reporting from the Athletics saying that there are Iranian spotters looking, uh, tracking the Iranian women who are in Doha because women cannot legally attend soccer matches in Iran. I don't know that any group of players in recent memory have carried more mm. pressure on their shoulders for off-field than the Iranian player. And to me, the question is, if Iran do uh, today eliminate the United States, who owns that victory for Iran? Will it be the regime? Will they weaponize it politically? Or will it be the protesters? So many of the players identify, of course, with the protesters uh, on the streets of Iran, yet several of the players had a uh, photo op with the president of Iran before they left. So not, there's not a monolithic political belief, apparently, among the, the players, but they have intense, intense, you know, it's tough enough to play in the World Cup with the whole world watching. But now, you know, the whole world is watching and they're watching on two different levels. Mm. And so much of this, you know, we're talking about the geopolitical aspect of this. People are also watching these games. The reason these games are happening is putting all yeah. those issues at the forefront, maybe educating a lot of people and teaching a lot of people about things they weren't paying that close attention to before. But when it comes to 2 p.m. today <laughs> here on the East Coast, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen with the U.S. and Iran? Wow. Um, you know, it's a binary situation for the U.S. It, it, it's kind of and then the players talked about it yesterday. It, they need three points. They must beat Iran. A draw won't do it. No other circumstances mm. in the group will do it. Their fate is in their hands. And they put themselves there because they have one goal in 200 minutes of soccer. This is a generational problem for U.S. soccer, having reliable scoring on demand at the international level. And so it is today. Uh, There are questions about the lineup and questions about maybe some friction between Gio uh, Reyna, the the young striker from Borussia Dortmund, the the son of Claudio Reyna, one of the greatest American players who has seen only 10 minutes of action. Uh, Talk that maybe uh, he and uh, the coach Greg Berhalter aren't seeing eye to eye. 
watch to see where he is inserted in the game, if he is inserted in the game. Um, who will be the selection of forwards? The United States have to come out. They have to come out aggressively. It's easy to say, but needing three points. And, and again, Kirosh, the, the Iranian coach, is a master of defense. And if you want to, as they say, park the bus and make it tough, you know, put all your defensive players back and, and prevent it. Um, we, we've seen the ability of teams just to play for a draw and the draw is not good enough for the United States today. It's going to be a tough, tough match. We'll be looking to see if they park the bus. Bob, thank you, Bob. And by the way, uh, you know, you should get a couple more Emmys. Uh, in yeah, you don't have enough. When, yeah. Oh, well thank deserved. you. Uh, you know, thank you. Appreciate it. Good to speak with you. <laughs> thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Good to see you. All right, we've got some breaking news this morning because the January 6th committee is now set to interview former White House Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato. Of course, that was the person at the center of that testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson over the summer. That's according to two sources familiar with the panel's work, what they're telling CNN. His testimony could shed new light on former President Trump's movements leading up to and around on January 6, 2021. CNN's Paula Reed is joining us live this morning from Washington. Paula, tell us what you're learning this morning about Tony Arnado's appearance. And we know we saw Kellyanne Conway there yesterday. That's exactly right. Now, good morning, Caitlin. Tony Arnado is potentially a key witness for the committee as it wraps up its investigation over the next few weeks. As you said, his testimony could shed light on what the former president was doing on and leading up to the insurrection. Now, you may remember the former presidential aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, testified back in June that Ornato told her that Trump lashed out in anger and actually lunged at members of his protective detail as he demanded to be taken to the Capitol on January 6th. Let's take a listen to what she said. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. Hutchins' testimony has really become a key event in the timeline of Trump's movements on January 6th, and Ornato has not denied that account on the record. But a Secret Service official who would only speak on the condition of remaining anonymous told CNN that Ornato denies telling Hutchinson that the former president grabbed the wheel or his agent on his detail. Now, Ornato has previously spoken with the committee twice, but that was before Hutchinson testified. And members of the investigative committee have long said that they want to call him back and, and ask him more questions. So during this virtual interview today, they will have a chance to revisit Hutchinson's testimony and really just try to nail down some of the details of this incident. And the committee is expected to wrap up its work over the next few weeks and then issue a final report detailing all the things that they have uncovered during this nearly two-year-long investigation. Caitlin. Talk about having some serious follow-up questions. Paula okay. Reed, thank you. It has been a chaotic 24 hours for Twitter's new CEO, Elon Musk. I don't know what's going on here. Very erratic. It started with a Musk with Musk posting a Pepe the Frog image, a meme used by white supremacists and designated as a hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League. So you have that. And then you have Musk sharing a bizarre photo of a gun and what he says was his bedside table along with Diet Cokes and a picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware. Okay, and then he turned his focus to Apple, claiming the company was going to withhold Twitter from its Apple store and asking if Apple hated free speech in America and tweeting at Apple CEO Tim Cook asking 
what is going on here. Well, later in the day, Musk teased that he will publish what he calls the Twitter files, claiming the public deserves to know what Twitter has done in the past regarding free speech suppression. And then finally, I'm sure there's going to be more, though, he posted uh, and penned a tweet saying that this is the battle for the future of civilization. Uh, If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. So glad we have our colleague and friend, Donny O'Sullivan, here with us to talk about all. I mean, I like where do you begin? Um, And I mean, right. It's like you have to laugh because it's like what else you do? No CEO operates like this. But it's really scary. Is is it not to see some of this stuff from the gun with what is going on? A lot, a lot going on. Uh, let's start with Apple, because that's what's really uh, important here. The Apple App Store uh, has a kind of quality control. So you can't just get any app on your phone. Apple vets the apps, one, to make sure there's not viruses in it that could be spying on us, but also to make sure that they don't have apps on their App Store that uh, promote hate speech or you know dangerous misinformation. We saw uh, Parler, which was a right-wing social media network, uh, getting kicked off the App Store for a while last year until they cleaned up their hate speech rules. Um, I think Twitter... Elon Musk is concerned because he is uh, taking down all the guardrails when it comes to the rules on the platform that Apple might turn around and say, hey, we don't want you on our app store anymore. And if that happened and Twitter was essentially unavailable as an app within iPhones, that could be uh, devastating for Twitter. One other important point when it comes to Apple, uh, we learned yesterday that Apple has basically stopped advertising on Twitter. And the Washington Post reported uh, that Apple in quarter one in the first quarter of this year was actually Twitter's biggest advertiser, spending uh, $48 million in the first quarter alone. So you can also see another reason why Musk uh, is taking issue at Apple. Well, that's 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 the thing here. Whether he's doing it, obviously it's out of some desperation. Um, If he's doing it for attention to try to get more eyes on Twitter. But the real issue, Doni, is that Apple's not the only one. Major advertisers are no longer advertising on Twitter, and that poses a huge problem beyond just Elon Musk for the, for the company, the stability and the longevity of the company itself. Absolutely. And look, uh, speaking of, of kind of tearing apart uh, the whole rule book that Twitter had these past few years, um, we just learned overnight, and I want to show you this screenshot from, from Twitter's website, um, they are no longer enforcing their COVID-19 misinformation policy. Um, since 2020, Twitter has been working. They were definitely not always uh, perfect. Um, there was a lot of misinformation about COVID, about the vaccines on the platform, but there was a rules in place and policies in place, uh, we learned that that is no more. Uh, That is no longer happening uh, at Twitter. Um, And that, again, might be another reason why Apple might say, hey, we don't want you to have us on, we don't want to have you on our app store. Uh, Finally, under that policy, according to Twitter's own numbers, since 2020, Twitter suspended 11,000 accounts for sharing COVID misinformation. It's very possible that a lot of those accounts we're going to see coming back uh, onto the platform. Mm. Uh, And one final thing, guys, um, the reason why I'm here in Florida other than working on my tan uh, is that we're about to hear today uh, from a Twitter employee 
Yoel Ross, who was in charge of writing a lot of these rules, uh, he left the company a few weeks ago. He basically couldn't work under Elon Musk anymore. uh, And he's about to speak out at a conference uh, here in Florida a little later today. It's absolutely remarkable. A clash between the world's richest man and the most valuable public company. That's a great way to put it. It's amazing. Donny O'Sullivan, we know that you'll stay on it. We'll check back in with you on updates. And your tan. And And the tan. (laughs) Not so sure about that one. Election denialism is on full display in Arizona this morning. I'm the chief election denier. I'm the person he talks about as far as a conspiracy theorist. This is vote trafficking at its finest. I've seen the criminal element. You are vote traffickers. You are vote traffickers. Criminal. But did the efforts of the people you hear from there stop the certification of the state's election work? We'll talk about that. And coming up, we will talk to the former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson about that and the state of America. That's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right, in Arizona, Democrat and the governor-elect Katie Hobbs is now suing one of the counties after officials voted to delay the certification of the November midterm election results, citing concerns about voting machines and effectively denying or defying a deadline that had been set by the state. This comes as prominent election deniers in Arizona, like Hobbs' former opponent, Carrie Lake, have still yet to concede their respective races. About 200 miles away, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to certify the results. It was not without fierce and sometimes a little bizarre resistance from constituents who confronted the board like this. I came here today to get an up-close and personal look at the seven traitors to the United States Constitution. Okay, again, We're please. sitting at that desk. This is vote trafficking. At its finest, I've seen the criminal element. You are vote traffickers. You are vote traffickers. Criminal. If this election is certified, the only parties that will benefit from this are the cartels. All your dealings are crooked. You give justice in exchange for bribes. These men are born sinners, lying from their earliest words. They are poisonous, deadly snakes. Dominion machine. You guys know they're dangerous. You know they're corrupt. I'm the chief election denier. I'm the person he talks about as far as a conspiracy theorist. All of those claims are baseless. Many of them are false, but it's important to show you that because as CNN, Sunlin Serfati is following this story. This is effectively delaying a lot of this process. So, Sunlin, what more do you know this morning about what is playing out in Arizona? Typically, a very routine procedural process. Election results usually are certified in the states without any issue. But what's happening in Arizona right now really does show how election denialism is fueling chaos in some places. You had that video in Maricopa where you have Carrie Lake refusing to concede. She has pointed to problems with printers at some voting centers, problems notably that the county ultimately found did not prevent people from voting. But those unfounded claims, they drove out those 
voters you saw in those clips yesterday, hour after hour, they were sounding off, heckling the election board. They're calling them traitors as they tried to move forward and ultimately did there with the certification. And then in Cochise County, county supervisors there yesterday, they voted to outright delay certification. They missed the legal deadline there. That drew an immediate lawsuit the same day yesterday from Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, who, of course, is projected to win her race for governor there. This pushes back certification there until at least Friday. Of course, Caitlin, all of this underscoring the continued grip that election conspiracy theorists have on some voters, and notably as well as some Republican sway over those voters and stoking that distrust. Yeah, and no place is that better seen than in Arizona, where they did, we should note, reject an election denier in many places on the ticket. Sunland Sarfati, thanks for that report. Thanks. I want to talk about all of this now with the former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, also previously the Defense Department General Counsel and now a partner at Paul Weiss. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate Glad it. Glad to be here, Don. So you saw the report from Sullen. You saw what's happening uh, in Arizona there, all of this election denialism. What do you think? I'm sure it bothers you. Well, first, I have to tell you about an amazing coincidence. Uh, Tyler Adams, yeah. the captain of the U.S. soccer team in Doha right now, is from Wappingers Falls, New York, and a graduate of Roy C. Ketchum High School. I'm from Wappingers Falls, New York, and a graduate of Roy C. Ketchum High School. It's the biggest shout-out Roy C. Ketchum has ever received on CNN, I'm sure. Um, just before I left office uh, as Secretary of DHS, Don, I, in January 2017, I declared election infrastructure to be critical infrastructure in this country. Over the objections of a lot of people. I'm glad I did it. The Trump administration reaffirmed it. Since then, a lot of good work has been put into the security around our election systems. In Washington, you have to repeat yourself a hundred times before anybody listens to you, before anybody gets the message. The reality is that we have rising voter participation in this country, which is good. In the face of the challenges of COVID in the 2020 election, the incidents of ballot fraud, theft, misidentity, the nearest round number percentage is zero. Mm -hmm. um, our elections today are as secure as they ever have been, in part because of a lot of the good work that's been done just over the last several years to secure our elections, to secure our democracy. In Arizona, I believe Kerry Lake is playing with fire. I believe that those who foment grievance, discontent, anger, uh, in the face of a lot of contrary evidence, uh, do make violence inevitable in this country. But Kerry Lake is not alone. This is not in a Arizona is not in a vacuum. And you said it's the most secure elections. And we know that to be the truth. We know that to be yeah. facts. Look at what's happening with social media, what's happening with Twitter, what happened with the former president, what happened with Kerry Lake. Yet those lies and that misinformation spreads. And you have people like the people in Arizona and all, all over this country yes. believing it. So now what? What do you do? Arizona is the focal point right now. And <clears throat> people really do listen to their leaders. People really do listen to those with the microphone, those with the public voice. And those who tap into suspicion, conspiracy theories, grievance, are playing with fire and do among the deranged within us, um, who live within us, uh, uh, make violence inevitable, in my view. 
I want to talk to you about what the, the former FBI director, or the FBI director, excuse me, Christopher Wray says, and the, the election lies anti-government extremism, because the current DHS secretary of America, the FBI director Christopher Wray, is saying that domestic violent extremism is the most lethal terrorism threat in this country right now. When you bring light to that, people don't like to hear it. When I talk, you know, I've yeah. talked about this for years now. Yeah. And for bringing it up, people will say, why are you doing this, Don? You're being racist about the, the, the threat of terror. It's foreign terrorism. It's not domestic terrorism. It's not right. Well, there's nothing racist about a fact-based conclusion. Uh, we've tracked terrorism now in this country for, for decades, going back to 9-11. Uh, when I was general counsel of the Department of Defense, uh, our principal terrorist threat to the homeland was foreign-based, ISIS, al-Qaeda, then we evolved to what we refer to as foreign-inspired terrorists, where someone here in the U.S. is inspired by an overseas terrorist organization. Now, as tracked by the Anti-Defamation League and others, uh, the principal terrorist threat is domestic-based violent extremism. Uh, it's a fact. It's reality. If you just look at the incidence of what we refer to as terrorism, over the last five, six years, that is the case. Mm. I wanted to, can we talk about the, uh, what happened with the, the former president, former President Trump meeting with uh, an anti-Semite, uh, a Holocaust denier, Nick Fuentes, at the White House um, last week at his home. Excuse me, not at the White House, excuse me, at um, Mar-a-Lago Mar at his home. Mm -hmm. um, Kanye West as well, he's made his mm -hmm. own anti-Semitic statements. Why do you think this is so significant to all of our politics to have a former president meeting and having dinner with a known anti-Semite and then making excuses for it? I feel like I've seen this playbook before from Donald Trump. Outrage. Uh, calling for a ban on Muslims immigrating to the United States, for example, in 2015. Uh, while many of us are offended, outraged, he is playing to his base in a certain, to a certain extent. Uh, I feel like I've seen this before. He's, he's ramping up his presidential campaign. He wants attention. Uh, it seems that Donald Trump's strategy is any level of attention is good attention from his standpoint. He gets us talking about controversy again. But the excuse, of course it's outrageous. The of course. The excuse for him, though, is that I did not know who Nick Fuentes was. I don't know who's coming into my own home. By the way, which is under investigation now for right. classified documents. What is the Just like he didn't know who David Duke was. He yes. had never heard of the Klan. He had never heard of this group or that group. Didn't know anything about the Proud Boys, supposedly. Um, but with the investigation going on not knowing in classified documents, what is the danger in that as a former head of Homeland Security? Well, the, the danger is that we, we fall into this trap of a, a certain large segment of the American population actually believing this because they want to believe it. Mm. Uh, Donald Trump's excuse is, well, I didn't know all about what this individual w was up to. You know, Donald Trump is still protected by the United States Secret Service as a former president. Mm. I know because I used to be a Secret Service protectee. The Secret Service will not let anybody within your proximity unless they have vetted that individual. And so to claim I didn't know who I was meeting with is simply implausible. Thank you, sir. We appreciate you coming Thank on. You. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Thank, Thank you, you so much.
Poppy? Yeah, fascinating conversation. Okay, ahead, students at the University of Idaho are speaking to CNN about how safe or unsafe, scared they feel on campus after the unsolved string of murders of four fellow students. Also this morning, Will Smith is now talking about what was going through his mind when he went on stage at the Oscars and slapped Chris Rock. We'll show you what he's saying. Good morning, everyone. Ahead on CNN this morning, actor Will Smith speaking out about slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, why he says he did it. Also, a special report on popular skin creams and beauty products that contain toxic chemicals. A woman says her eyesight was damaged because of them. And 40 million Americans this morning from Texas to Illinois threatened by severe weather, including tornadoes, hail and damaging wind. But first, students at the University of Idaho speak to CNN as they return from Thanksgiving break. While police are on a manhunt right now for a killer of four students stabbed to death in their rental home just off campus. Watch this. I just know that if I stayed home, I wouldn't get any work done. Um, Plus, I feel safe in my dorm. I know a lot of people don't. You personally feel safe right now being on campus? Um, I would say moderately. Um, At night, not so much. I've been getting the safe locks that's offered by the campus, and then that makes me feel a lot more safe. Um, But during the day, I feel pretty safe. It's kind of a different vibe. It seems kind of sad, upsetting. It's kind of quiet. Most people are friendly, but now it's just kind of, um, I don't know, people are kind of sketched out, not really aware of the situation. Does the campus feel emptier? Yes, definitely. Do you feel safe coming back? Um, well, with all the campus security and them upping that up and with the safe locks, and I have a lot of friends here, so I never really go anywhere by myself, so I do, I do. So right now, detectives are asking for tips and surveillance video as they continue to investigate. In the wake of tragedies like that one, psychologists are exploring the long-term effects that trauma has on entire communities, especially for people of color. Take a listen to the new episode of Audie Cornish's CNN podcast, The Assignment, on this. Erasure is political, right? So to say, I want to treat you as a human being, so I have to pretend your race doesn't exist. Right. It's basically what we're saying. If we if I can't ask you about uh, your how your identity has affected your life, then basically we're saying to value you as a human, I have to pretend that we're all having an identical experience. Joining us now is CNN anchor and correspondent host of the assignment with Audie Cornish. This is a really interesting conversation. What stood out to you from what she was telling you? It may feel like it's not related to the news, but in a way it was to me. There's just been this unprecedented kind of um, era of loss, right? Whether it's mass shootings, um, also how COVID has affected families around the country and in many cases affected marginalized communities. And so I was trying to find out, hey, what are psychologists doing differently, especially as more and more people are seeking help? And that's how I actually learned about Dr. Tama Bryant, who is going to be the incoming president of the American Psychological Association. Um, Don loved this so much, by the way. I love all of You know I love you. This one resonated to yeah. me the most because it, I mean, it hit home when you talked about, when she, she talked about, we, we are all not having identical experiences. Right. We're not. It's just, and, and that's okay. But the thing where you talked about um, 
this sort of the, it, to me, it reminded me of, of Eckhart Tolle. You talk about the emotional pain body of that people of color may have, or women may have, or, or Jewish people may have that you carry for generations. That really, um, it, it, I, I took that to heart, and I yeah. understood exactly what you were saying. What is the lesson in that? For all of us. Well, the the lesson and for all of us is, as Dr. Tama said, um, our our background. It isn't necessarily we're locked into a destiny or that we're locked into a kind of trauma. It's that to acknowledge everything in that story is to help with the healing process. So just to give you some context, there is genetic research called epigenetics, which actually looks at gene suppression in groups that have dealt with trauma. They looked at the descendants of Holocaust survivors. They looked at the descendants of pregnant women after 9-11. So the idea that you can kind of pass down um, certain traumas and that that can affect the next generation is real, is being researched. The psychology part of it is actually saying, okay, let's Let's actually ask these key questions when someone comes in. Have you experienced discrimination? Is there something in your background that um, I'm pretending I can't see, right? But I need to acknowledge. And this is a shift for psychologists. And I think uh, her being placed in a position of power for them um, could make the difference because she's going to introduce these ideas in a more widespread way. And how significant that they came out with this statement saying the APA that they were, quote, complicit in contributing to systemic inequalities, hurt many through racism, racial discrimination, and denigration of people of color. To acknowledge it, to say it, to write it down, to put it out to the right. public. And it wasn't uncontroversial. There were people who said, look, this is woke politics taking over um, our science. This is not appropriate. This is identity politics coming into play. And Dr. Bryant's take is, as you heard, erasure is political. That if you don't have these conversations and if you aren't having a kind of holistic um, view of your patients, then you're doing them a disservice. Just real quick, this is not to say that destiny, our destinies are predetermined because of the experiences our right. generation. Because that's the part I flinched yes. at when I was talking to her. It explains behavior and also a greater understanding of each other. Yeah, there are post-traumatic stress responses people have talked about when it comes to racial stress, et cetera. And it's, uh, it's part of our kind of broader acceptance of mental health in, in culture to understand what these things are and where they come from. And it can be such an explanation for so many people. We have more that we want to talk to you about, so don't go anywhere yet. Um, well, you can listen to uh, Audie's new podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish, whenever available wherever you get your podcast. Will Smith opening up about his infamous slap of Chris Rock at the Academy Awards. Oh, there's many nuances and, and complexities to it, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, I just I lost it. Will uh, Will Smith's fans punish him by passing on his new film? He's going to respond. That's next. So this morning, Will Smith is directly addressing concerns that moviegoers may reject him and his new film, Emancipation. Emancipation is a civil rights drama that's inspired by the real-life story of how a slave named Peter escaped captivity in the Deep South to join the Union Army. The film is Smith's first major role since winning Best Actor at the Academy Awards in March. 
Of course, his win was completely overshadowed by his slapping comedian Chris Rock after he told a joke at the expense of, uh, of Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. Now Smith is opening up, saying that he is well aware that some people may not be ready to embrace his new work. Watch this. I completely understand that. If, if uh, you know, someone is not ready, I would absolutely respect that and allow them their space to not be ready. My deepest hope is that my actions don't penalize my team. So last night, Smith appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah to discuss what exactly was going through his mind that night and what unfolded later. Here it is. That was a horrific night, uh, as you can imagine. Um, you know, there's many nuances and, and complexities to it, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, I just, I lost it. I was going through something that night, you know? And uh, not that that, you know, justifies my behavior yeah, at all. No, I would just say, you know, you're asking what did I learn? And it's that um, we just gotta be nice to each other, man. You know, it's like, it's hard. And I guess the thing that was most painful for me is I took my heart and made it hard for other people, you know? Right. And it's like, I understood the idea where they say hurt people hurt people. Yeah. I understand, you know, how shocking that was for people, man. Right. You know, um, on you that shocked? stage. You seemed, you seemed a little dazed afterwards, I'm yeah, not gonna yeah, lie. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I was gone, dude. I was gone. I was gone. I was, um, you know, that was a, a rage that had been bottled for a really right. long time. Right. My little, my nephew, Dom, is nine, and he is the sweetest little boy. He's like, you know, we came home, and it's like he had stayed up late to see his uncle Will, you know, and we're sitting in my kitchen, and he's on my lap, and he's holding the Oscar, and he's just like, "Why did you hit that man, Uncle Will?" You know, damn it. Thank you, you. Why are you trying to Oprah me? <laughs> <laughs> so in the wake of the incident, the Academy voted to ban Smith from the Oscars for 10 years after he resigned. So we're back now. We told Audi to stick around. Uh, I'm wondering what you thought about that. And then I'll share a little personal story. What did you think? I kind of want to hear this story first. <laughs> but um, I want to give a little context to this that... Um, just because of the segment we were last talking about, he is currently promoting a film. Um, the film does take place in sort of the slavery era. And there is actually a kind of wider critical movement of black trauma on screen, which makes this film just a tiny bit more of a heavy lift to promote the audience that you want to draw to it, maybe a little bit upset with Will Smith right now. The black audience that you may want to uh, bring to it may feel fatigued by even the concept of the film. So the fact that he's out here doing this emotional labor publicly um, really does talk about the stakes um, of kind of this genre of work and the black artists who are still doing it and are, st and are finding it to be a, literally a tougher sell. Yeah. Well, look, not to betray any confidence, you guys know that I know Will Smith and have been communicating with him over 
since that happened. I mean, I've been communicating with him before, but since it happened, we've been talking. And I actually met with him, and I spoke with him for like an hour. It's just me and him in a room sitting down talking. And again, not to betray any confidence, but what he said on The Daily Show is pretty close to what we talked about. And it has been a journey for him over the last months. Uh, and I feel like he is somewhat of a different person. And I'm sure he will share that when he's ready to share that he'll share it. But um, I agree with you that it's, it's going to be a heavy lift. And I know that he's. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that to be so focused on the business part of it. I do think he has been apologizing, you know, in the era of crummy apologies, yeah. this is what apologizing does look like. Um, and the question is now, uh, what does it mean to re-embrace someone of this stature culturally? We've seen it in other contexts, Me Too, et cetera, where it gets kind of complicated how people feel about the person's art. This is not that, yeah. but it is on that same kind of spectrum of the apology. What happens after the apology? What does it mean to be forgiven in the cultural sense of and it? Can he be re-embraced? That's a question. Can he be re-embraced? And we'll see. Well, we'll see. TBA, TBD. I will think. not be from lack of trying. Yeah. We'll see. Thank you for your wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, up next, you're going to want to see this. New warnings about the risks posed by toxic ingredients found in some beauty products. We're talking about face cream, what it can do to your vision, that's ahead. All right, now to a CNN exclusive. Experts are warning about the risks posed by extremely toxic ingredients found in some skin whitening and other beauty products. Officials say a Minnesota woman suffered vision loss and developed other symptoms after unknowingly using beauty creams that contain high levels of mercury. Our senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, has more. Uh, and this case was shared exclusively with CNN with you by a doctor at the Minnesota Poison Control System. I think everyone who uses cream on their faces wondering, what is it? How do I avoid it? Right. So these are whitening creams, Poppy. And my colleagues who wrote this story, they talked to the Minnesota Department of Health. And that department, they found it in people's urine. They found it in homes. They found it in products. Now, these products basically weren't my colleagues say they weren't really sold in like major retails. It was more neighborhood stores, but they certainly found it. Let's take a look at where they found it in people's home. When the folks at the Minnesota Department of Health went to go measure it, um, that was found in the air. It was found in washing machines, which means it's in clothing. It was found in bedding and towels. It can be very dangerous. If you read their story on CNN.com, you'll see some advice about what products to avoid. Poppy, Caitlin, okay. Don. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much for the heads up. And again, you can read more on CNN.com. All right. In this season of giving, we want to show you how you can help our 2022 top 10 CNN heroes continue their very important work and have your donations also match dollar for dollar. Here's what Anderson Cooper said. I'm Anderson Cooper. Each of this year's top 10 CNN heroes proves that one person really can make a difference. And again, this year, we're making it easy for you to support their great work. Just go to CNNHeroes.com and click donate beneath any 2022 top 10 CNN hero to make a direct contribution to that hero's fundraiser. You'll receive an email confirming your donation, which is tax deductible in the United States. No matter the amount, you can make a big difference in helping our heroes continue their life-changing work. And right now, through January 3rd, your donations will be matched dollar for dollar up to a total of $50,000 for each of this year's honorees. 
CNN is proud to offer you this simple way to support each cause and celebrate all of these everyday people who are changing the world. You can donate from your laptop, your tablet, or your phone. Just go to CNNHeroes.com. Your donation in any amount will help them help others. Thanks. Of course, all of our top 10 CNN heroes will be honored at CNN Heroes, the all-star tribute hosted by Anderson Cooper and Kelly Ripa. That is live on Sunday, December 11th. Make sure you tune in. All right. Overnight, we have to tell you about this. Actor Clarence Gilliard Jr. passed away. Hey, man, we could have had him. Hey, we could have had him, man. I'm a fire when I am goddamn good and ready. You get that? So this is how you would know Gilliard. He was known for his role as a naval flight officer in Top Gun and as a computer hacker in Die Hard. He also appeared in TV series Walker, Texas Ranger, alongside Chuck Norris. Uh, his death was announced on Monday in a statement from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, where he had been working as an associate professor at the College of Fine Arts. Gilliard was 66 years old. Old. Mm. He will be missed. What a life. Thinking of his family, yeah, for life. sure. Yeah, but lots of roles, right? I do at Walker, Texas Ranger. That was yeah. a very, very popular role with the, with the hat. Yeah, so many of them. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this morning. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.